Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I am your host, Gary Cacciolillo. And before we get started, I want to thank all my listeners for listening and also thank the contributors to my show, who are executive producers Candace Sanderson, author of The Reluctant Messenger, and Ms. Aida, psychic and author of Hoodoo Cleansing Protection Magic, binaural production engineer Damien Keller, author of Sounds Good, Sounds Great, and monthly co-host Jared Murphy, author of It's Not Aliens, It's Worse, It's Us. If you are interested in contributing to this podcast, go to my website, everythingimaginable2020.com, and you'll find everything you need there. And now, without further ado, my guest for today is David Morehouse, and this is the second time he has been on, and he is the author of Psychic Warrior and the Remote Viewing Handbook. Um, and I did have the honor of taking his class recently, and he has come on on Thanksgiving morning of all times <laughs> to, to talk about that experience. Thanks for coming on, Dave. Hey, it's really a pleasure to be here again, Gary. Yeah, really, yeah. So, so um, you know, last time we talked, you let me uh, th- give you access to your remote viewing class, and um, it was absolutely mind blowing. You know how following those six simple stages um, was just—it was just incredible. It was absolutely in- in- incredible. Um, did you feel like you transitioned from believing something was possible to knowing? Oh, absolutely. Beyond the, beyond absolutely. The not, not, even maybe a little bit more than just knowing, you know, <laughs> yeah. you know, it, it was more than just knowing because it made me feel something for one. Um, and also, I don't know. It, it it leaves me with a lot of questions, you know. Like like, here we are. Everybody has this ability, um, you know. So so obviously, in this ability that we're talking about, the remote, you know, the remote viewing, you take it outside of time and space. So if I'm able to view, if, if everybody's able to view things that are outside of time and space. You know, it, it just leaves me with so many questions. Like, one, like, why am I actually physically even in this time and space if I can go outside of it? Um, and, and just so many other other types of questions. Um, and one of the things too that 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 made it so real is being in the like when I, if I say like I, I I read tarot cards for for people, but the only verification I'm getting is from that one other person that I'm reading for. In the class, everybody is getting this information. It's not just me and one other person or, or you know, th- th- there's no question about the, uh, the objective and the subjectiveness of what the information is being received. There's all this verification that it is correct. Um, and it that's really was life changing. Yeah. That's why I don't, I will never teach in, you know, in the independent students. First of all, I don't. I, I'm busy, <laughs> not not with teaching remote viewing, but you know, with with my two companies that are you know, medical training company and medical research company, and uh, I, I'm not going to sit down with somebody and charge them some ridiculous amount of money 
and then take responsibility for their experience and push them through a remote viewing class, a coordinate remote viewing class. Uh, although I've been asked many times, but I, I just won't do it because there is a significant impact uh, that you just articulated. And that is you're in a class with 40 people and doesn't matter where you see yourself stacking up. In fact, right. as you know, you're told, don't try to measure yourself in here. Just take what you did, look at, look at the quantifiable measurable attributes, figure out what works, go to the other links, see if you can find other data about this target that was not shown in the video feedback or is not in the photographs, but you get to see then what all these other, everybody in your small group, and then, you know, we pull it up and talk about everybody in the class. And it's just, as I, as I always tell people, I don't think it sinks in until they're there like you, which is the whole reason for doing coordinate remote viewing is so that you get this irrefutable, undeniable evidence that you are more than the physical, that we're all more than the physical, and that we can interact with and learn from and, you know, put into it, take out of it. We can, you know, it's that kind of a living, breathing, you know, experience that you figure out very quickly that this is part of me. It's always been part of me. Yeah. I cannot get rid of this. <laughs> and I can't, I can't, especially now, because now you would have to go through some very concerted effort to deny yourself uh, a continued opening and awakening with this. If you were to, you know, if you were to really work at it and call it bullshit, I guess you could you can. probably get yourself there, but you're not. I can't right? do that. <laughs> people don't. I mean, once that, once that aperture opens and you suddenly realize that, oh, my God, oh, my God. Now, you said that it affected you in a really strange way that you couldn't. I wanted to, I wanted you to see if you could figure out what that was. I, in in, in, in a lot of strange ways, because it's, it's left you with so many questions. Like one, sure. you know, what is, it makes me reevaluate reality. Sort of like, what is the point of reality to begin with? If I can exist in a physical reality and pull information that's way outside of a physical reality, like why what is the point like like one why is it like this you know um i, and, I and, and, and then and then there's the how how is yeah. it even possible you you know that i was once a high priest in the mormon church i've mm -hmm. heard me tell that story and how i felt like a hypocrite because of what i was saying so i i and i also spent a lot of time with a lot of biblical scholars listening to them and reading their research and i don't any longer and didn't when i was in the remote viewing unit ascribe to that particular story of how we got here and what we're supposed to do while we're here i always take away from one of the first premises of uh, this you know the bible but it's it's such a difficult thing to accept as a reality. I mean, it just drives me crazy when people call it the word of God because 
There are literally 2,500 versions of that Bible in English. <laughs> 2,500 versions of that Bible. And, and every version has a, the imprint of man on it. Mm -hmm. So it's always the interpretation of man. Uh, and even when you know it, it's like you can read all different kinds of things and in there and read what the scholars are saying. And I don't want to belabor this point, but it, it just becomes this, uh, it, there is only like one apostle <laughs> And our disciple in there, whoever actually, you know, sat with and listened to Jesus Christ. If, if you know, if Jesus existed, mm -hmm. uh, that's questionable as well. But if it did, if he did, there was only one in the Bible who actually sat and listened. All the rest of them, it's like, uh, it's like the you know New York Times reprinting something at the Washington Post printed that's like reporting on the report mm -hmm. and, and that's what has happened you've got all these guys stepping up and going well here's what he said and here's what he meant and here's what you know blah 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 and it's all it's all just conjecture because they never sat with the guy and yeah. and you know took you know got that kind of information they just crafted this mm -hmm. and then the people that took what they crafted they crafted something one of 2500 different English versions of that book. So my point is, the one premise that is consistent throughout is talks about free agency. And so I have this belief uh, that I have never, you know, fully explored to, uh, <clears throat> to a point of realization. But uh, in my heart and my mind as a scientist, uh, what I believe is that uh, we are here for a reason. Uh, where we came from, I I don't know. And if I speculated something, it would just be weird to people. Uh, but clearly we came and were put here by some intelligence. Uh, we did not evolve out of primordial ooze, which is what, uh, you know, some scientists uh, that uh, that are against the creationist story, you know, right. they, they think that we evolved out of, you know, swamp moss and ooze. Well, there is absolutely no proof of that either. It is it, that's a complete, you know, <laughs> starting from here to here, and we'll just make that leap and say, you know, from somewhere, you know, with, out of out of this, uh, you know, out of this biological material came mm -hmm. a living form that evolved into us. I just think that's as much bullshit as the other story is, to be honest with you. Right. I think that we came from a source, and, and it was an intelligent source. And I think that we were put here and given our free agency. And our free agency means that it is our right, our ability. It is a, it is a, a granted condition of this physical existence here, of being able to choose right or wrong or somewhere in between. And people struggle with that. It's why I will say to people, like I have even said in combat to, to somebody like that would say, well, why did God let this happen? God didn't have a damn thing to do with this. God didn't start this war. <laughs> I mean, you've got, look, you've got one side, you got one side saying that Allah is on their side, uh, or and and our side saying, no, God's on our side. And, and plus, you know, whether you're Catholic or, you know, uh, Baptist or non-denominational, whatever you happen to be, it's just, it's just ridiculous. So what is consistent is that, Humanity 
has an ability to choose. And we choose badly a lot <laughs> of the time. Just look around right now. Mm -hmm. Now we're back in another Cold War. <clears throat> so what's the purpose of this existence? It, it is to gain knowledge, to gain wisdom. It is not to suffer and struggle. I disagree with that premise as well. It is to, uh, it is to aspire to greatness. It is to become scholars uh, and learned people, not drug addicted, uh, you know, burned out uh, folks living in the swamp, so to speak. Pardon anybody that lives in swamps. I don't mean you necessarily. But it is, it's not to, you know, fail to read, don't listen in school, all those kinds of things, just become a troublemaker and go to prison. It's about, it's about living the most powerful life that you can possibly live. It's about strengthening and building and exercising and rediscovering these, these intellectual, spiritual uh, muscles that we have been, we were born with in this existence. That is a very powerful premise that came right out of SRI uh, and is also a, a theological premise, uh, although not accepted widely, but that is that humanity was born with this ability. It, then you have to ask yourself, as opposed, once you get past the marvel of just understanding if the ability does exist within you, is ask yourself, why? Did, why were you given this ability? You were placed here and asked to become the best that you can possibly become, mm -hmm. utilizing your own free agency and the gifts that were your birthright as you got here, which is your intellect, you know, uh, your ingenuity, your creativity, your artistic endeavor, your mechanical, in, you know, endeavors. Uh, and by the way, you have this ability to connect to the source that you have that, that, you know, Swedish and Norwegian uh, uh, pediatric psychologists and psychiatrists all agree in their peer-reviewed research saying children are born into this existence with a knowingness. They, they know where they came from and they know why they're here. They can't really you know, articulate why in such a way that the researchers can fully grasp it, but they are all very clear that, hey, we're on to something here. This is un this is unbelievable. This is, you know, this says that children born into this existence are born with a sense of knowing. They're connected. So what causes that to go away? Well, the legions of the status quo. Everything from religion, which ascribes these qualities of being omnipresent, omniscient, right? Uh, of, uh, of, of the things that being eternal, Oh, those are not qualities that exist in you. Those are things that you must adhere to the doctrines of the religion in order to attain those. Maybe, mm -hmm. at, you know, at the end of this, if you're judged <laughs> properly, you know, if you if you don't fail, you know, and go to the back of the line, I guess, or something else. So it it is when you start looking at it from that perspective, it is overwhelmingly beautiful and powerful for you to know. I am an omnipotent, omnipresent, omnipresent, omniscient, eternal being. I have always been connected to this thing that is outside of me. There are all kinds of things yet to discover about it that we have not because we've 
blinded ourselves purposely over millennia. We have decided that that was not something that we should recognize or work with, particularly in the modern age. So remote viewing happened to be a tool. There are others out there, but as you heard from me, many of them are anecdotal and experiential. And so therefore they lack, they lack the powder, you know, the power to, uh, to really sink home this knowledge that you are, you are connected to something beyond the physical. And as that sinks in and you put together free agency and you, you know, you don't ascribe or assign yourself and your belief structures to things that men have, an inter have interpreted and written, you are now dealing with a power inherent to you. And that growth is, uh, is scary and it's uncomfortable at first. But as I said to you, as everybody asks, what's the, what's the long goal in this? The long goal is to understand that you do not need the structure of coordinate remote viewing. It serves a purpose. It's a tool. It's a tool to get you to this place of knowing. And now in this empowered state, you take the next level of this learning and this phenomenon, which is devoid of the structure of coordinate remote viewing. And you practice and you take the next level and the next level and what eventually happens is <clears throat> you, you are no longer consciously going, you know, connecting to the unconscious and, and you know, evaluating back into the physical and connecting to the unconscious, you will get to the point where you walk in both worlds. You will walk in the physical and the non-physical, and you will be there uh, as a part, because it is a realized part of your nature. It was how you were intended to walk this earth and live on this earth. How different would uh, the global society be if all of us realized that we're connected to something outside of ourselves and it's not luck <laughs> you know and it's it's uh you know it's it's as confucius might say or you know some something along those nature along those lines it's not it's not luck and it's not uh, fortune and it's not those kinds of things you were born with this ability it was a gift it was put here for a reason as were we and we were giving a given a very simple set of rules choose Choose right or choose wrong, but don't blame it on me. <laughs> you know, <laughs> if there was a creator that put us here uh, from whatever surface, whatever source, you know, and it's like uh, that's one of the beautiful things. It's like Stephen Hawking in his final years came to the conclusion he was always considered to be just a devout atheist, and perhaps he was, but. He, along with a lot of other, you know, uh, devout atheists, working long enough, find reasons to believe in something uh, and then try to find reasons to prove it. So what he established for himself was he worked long and hard in this attempting to reverse engineer, right, the universe, starting with watching galaxies separate and mm -hmm. measuring the speed and track and the distance. And, uh, and using that mathematically in physics to reverse engineer, trying to get it back to a point of singularity. And for years, his, uh, his support staff kept 
really smart people kept coming back and going, <clears throat> we can't do it. It, 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 won't, it won't work. Time, you keep telling us to factor time in as a variable and time, is, time doesn't work. The, the math doesn't support it. As you get to a certain point in that reverse engineering process, time goes away. It can't be part of the equation anymore. Well, that's a real head scratcher, right? Mm -hmm. So it is for some until you understand that in quantum mechanical physics, they, time is an illusion. Time is a creation of man. It's again, right? Yeah. It's, that is a, a creation of mankind. And especially when you hear people talking about future time and past time and stuff like that, that doesn't exist as a, you know, a, a cosmic law in the universe. It does not. Right, which is why we spend so much time with that delta function in class teaching you that on outside the moment there are nothing but potentials, right? Mm -hmm. There are potentials, positive and negative, for you know to put it into very simplistic language. We know that there's far more than positive and negative. I mean, there's everything in between, yeah. and, you know, et cetera. But just to help wrap your head around it, it's positive and negative that people can sort of get a grasp of that. But outside the moment, which is the only thing you're in charge of, it is nothing but potentials. And so as you resonate in the moment, that's what causes you to drive the moment to or bring potentials in close to the moment, right? Uh, through that cone of probabilities where closer the moment gets to that particular potential or outcome, uh, the more, the higher the probability is that it will actually become part of your, your reality. Uh, but look, my, I, I started to go down a rabbit hole there that I didn't really want to go on. Well, this was a good rabbit hole because this, this goes right into my next question. One of the things that you would always talk about is the quantum matrix field and all the probabilities that it comes with. And this made me rethink something. Like, the probabilities that are most likely going to happen, I would assume, are the ones where I'm focusing my energy towards. So if I focus my energy towards this group of probabilities, then, then that's the direction I'm going to go, is in that direction. Rather than Yielding, rather, the rather than sort of like... Is don't focus outside of the moment, because mm -hmm. if you're focusing outside of the moment, uh, it becomes wishing. Right. Uh, and wishing is not a powerful perspective in the moment. The moment is about, it's about intention. It is about intention, right. direction, right. about purpose, right? About calling. It is about those things. You are trying to be powerful, awakened, aware, and you are trying to, you know, to, to live your life in such a way that you are now, you know, go back to the old Jewish, uh, uh, physicist Itzhak Bentov, right? Where you are resonating in the moment. You're causing a frequency, an amplitude in the moment based mm -hmm. on your attention, yourself, your life, how you're living, how you, you know, how you respond to things. Remember the model I gave you that you could be the observer, yeah. the evaluator, and how all that goes? So <laughs> living in the moment, focusing on being your best self, in the moment, with governed by your intention, your actions, your words, mm -hmm. your thoughts toward people, doing that brings you to the things that you're supposed to have. Now, remember, 
we said that there is in the equation, there's a thing called change distribution. And that means that you are one individual uh, moment, right? Mm -hmm. Entraining other potentials, uh, trying to entrain other potentials uh, to come into that moment for you. But with change distribution, it puts into play the collective moment. So meaning there is a collective global societal moment. We are all here together and we are all resonating at different thing, at different frequencies with different purpose and different callings, etc. But that establishes a waveform. And despite the fact that there are different, you know, amplitudes and frequencies, eventually it averages into one kind of dominant average waveform and that brings into that brings into the collective right it entrains those kinds of things so if you have three quarters of the world focusing on uh religion uh, then we we begin to continue to you know to develop and perpetuate that if we have you know three quarters of the world focusing on war and and taking what other people have or denying other people something because you have it. Like you're not going to sell them precious metals anymore. You're going to go take their island or you're going <laughs> to do something else. If that becomes the focus of governments and of peoples, you know, under those governments, then what starts to happen is the world, the, the collective begins to in, be in start in training and moving based on that frequency starts to move the collective moment into those kinds of potentials. So can you, should you run around, set your hair on fire and be, be afraid, be afraid, be afraid? No, <laughs> that's a shit of conspiracy theories. That's, you know, watch, you, you can watch CNN, Fox or CNBC, <laughs> right? And it's all designed to do one thing, agitate the shit out of you. Yeah. It's just designed to piss you off, which is what can you do about that? Your free agency, you have a choice. Stop watching it. Right. You know, come and listen to some of your speakers. You know that to people. Come listen to some of your speakers and their messages because I really love the title of your show. Anything possible? I think that's amazing. Uh, but yeah, you know, you have to seek out good things that nourish you, that that build you, that empower you, uh, that you know, that make you feel good that make you you know motivated to do something you know to help others or be part you know be a positive force and if you are you know attaching yourself to all of this constant pounding of fear and you know and hatred and negative messaging you know it's god it's gotten so bad uh that you know now you got to listen to the talking head and you got you know two levels of ticker tape down at the bottom <laughs> You've got horrible black graphics of red and black, you know, which are agitating colors. All this shit that's on you, it's just bombarding you. And that's why 20 years ago, 25 years ago, I just went, eh, and I stopped watching any of that stuff. I won't watch it. I just won't. And surprise, surprise. You know, if a tsunami were coming here to Florida, I'm certain I would find out. My neighbor would probably send me an email. <laughs> I don't have to worry about any of that, about any of that stuff, you know. Uh, but I just wanted to finish that thought back on because I diverted and lost track of myself talking about Stephen Hawking and his atheistic tendencies. He 
made the case, he said, if the universe has not just existed for all time, which is what was originally thought, that's what classical mechanical physics believed, that is what uh, cosmologists believe, and it has really only come about through quantum mechanical interpretations, physics interpretations, that this idea that the universe actually began from a point of singularity and came into something, came in and became the universe. And when he mathematically established that theory, that, you know, from his hypothesis, when that happened, uh, that interpretation, then he made the case, he said, if the universe was born, then it, it makes the case for a creator. Cool, right? Mm -hmm. It makes mm -hmm. the case for a creator. But if it was just always here, the idea that you're plugging in a creator concept into it makes absolutely no sense to, to his mind. And I, I would have to share that sentiment. But I, it touched my heart to hear him say that, uh, that it was, yeah, you know, he didn't stand up and say, I'm an atheist. He stood up and said, based on what we know right now, if the universe in fact was born in from somewhere into its current existence and is, is growing and, you know, and it's moving outward and has not yet finished expanding. And then what's going to happen when it does finish expanding? Is it going to come back again? Is there going to be an entropy where it comes all the way back and collapses back down again? Does time reverse? Anyway, that that's not what we need to talk about, but that's what he was thinking, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, <clears throat> that's what I see because you asked that question. What's our purpose? You know, why is that here? Why is reality here? It has to be here. We cannot just exist in this non-physical altered state of consciousness. You want to be there where you become hyper-intuitive, hyper-aware, hyper-connected. You know, you know things, you know, without knowing why you know them. Because why? Because you have opened the conduits of consciousness into this connection that you have. You have just now, you've experienced that in mm -hmm. the class that you've done saw it happening in other people and you felt it happening and saw it happen for yourself so that's that is a powerful and moving thing that is why you know after i was ex experienced it that's why i felt compelled you know to write the book to mm -hmm. tell the story to connect the dots that said this is not just a hobby <laughs> this is not just a spiritual practice this is this was an intelligence collection methodology, mm -hmm. right? This was a weapon of war, if you want to look at it that way. And it was powerful. It was developed in science. It was validated in science. And then it was used as an intel collection tool for 30 years plus. They're still using it. So that's something that needs to be shared with the whole of humanity. Right. That was the reason for writing that book. And no other reason. I just grossly underestimated the response to the government. <laughs> so, <laughs> I can only imagine. That's an understatement. <laughs> yeah, I really grossly underestimated that. So how about for like, like the other way? If everything is either is a, is a single consciousness or what I think is my single consciousness is a waveform, and there's this collective consciousness that's also a waveform, 
That means everything that that I'm perceiving and we're experiencing is, is all in a waveform, which mean, would mean that reality itself is not actually real. It isn't. It's yeah, just you know uh, it's just an experience, I guess. Yeah, it, it is. You know, when you uh, when you get into extended remote viewing, you're going to get extensive physics lecture from me on that. You know, uh, <laughs> and, and you know, you heard me mention it in coordinate remote viewing, where I said that we're ninety nine point nine percent space. Right? Mm -hmm. Did I give you? The, were you there when yeah, I? Yeah. Yeah. Tell me how many atoms in an orange. Right. For you to tell, for you to be able to conceptualize how many atoms would be in a simple orange, a navel orange, you'd have to blow that orange up to the size of planet Earth. So now you would be standing on an Earth-sized orange, and you could see the atoms making up that orange. They would be the size of table grapes. Okay, and then if you pulled up one of those atoms, and if I said, "Can you find?" the electrons and the nucleus in this atom, you would have to blow that atom up to the size of the Dallas Cowboys football stadium. So now that grape is that big, mm -hmm. the atom is that big, and the nucleus would be the size of a small dried pea somewhere in that stadium. Somewhere in that stadium. And the electrons would... In, in you know in observable form would be to that scale would be the size of grains of sand now from grains of sand to small dried pea to the giant sports arena right to the orange the size of the earth it's a lot of space right it is 99.9% space is the you know is the statement and so what's that space filled with because it's only in particle wave theory or particle wave interpretation, it's only particle when observed. When unobserved, right, it decoheres. It collapses back into its waveform. And that waveform travels not from position one to position two. It travels by every possible path. So omnidirectionally. Mm -hmm. Hence, right? So... Uh, when we talk more about this and we get into uh, the lectures that we'll, we'll get in extended remote viewing, we talk more about, you know, where the where some of the physics breaks down and why if it was as as uh, some classical interpretations are uh, are held uh, back to it's kind of the Rutherford atomic model kind of thing that if it was how it was originally taught. Uh, what would happen is it would it would all collapse down on on itself, and if that happened, your your desk would disappear, as would your chair, you know, as would everything on your desk, and, and those kinds of things. So, uh, from a quantum mechanical perspective, it gets kind of comical about you know addressing some of the classical mechanical uh, concepts or interpretations about you know atoms and particle wave, etc. But just suffice it to say that everything is 99.9% .9 space, and therefore, it is filled with waveform. Everything, meaning every thought, every object, every life form, every planet, every sun, every galaxy, every universe, every dimension, because that was the other really beautiful thing about 
the fact that our our universe was now finite, right? It was finite, not infinite, finite. If it started from something and we can now see how fast it's separating, that means we can mathematically extrapolate out to and, uh, and, and say, yeah, there's an edge. And there are even people that have come up with mathematical you know, derived models to say it might it looks like this or it maybe it looks like this but the thing that that never ruffled my feathers about that it just sounded as that's exactly the way i would think that it should be and it means that if our universe is finite where did it come from and what's it in right what's it in i mean What's the space it's filled in now? Yeah. And then now that goes back down. That, that all extrapolates back down where you start talking about quantum foam of space and time and stuff. And mm -hmm. you start to see these like wormholes that connect to another to another bubble, right? Bigger bubble, bubbles, smaller bubbles. And it, it, it your head starts to go <laughs> probably, you know, see, it doesn't it doesn't burn your brain. It's kind of like, yeah. It, that would make perfect sense, right? Mm -hmm. If it came from a point of singularity, it's in something, which means it's in a space. And if that, if our universe came from that place, that that dimension, perhaps that, and this is there's this is a quantum mechanical interpretation. Perhaps that's what happens in a black hole: is that a black everything that disappears into a black hole perhaps what's happening to it is it's being pushed through into another dimension i mean there's a lot of sci-fi concepts about yeah. that but it is a realistic you know they don't really know what happens there but it makes sense and there are mathematical models that are getting closer to uh, an interpretation that is acceptable with that but mm -hmm. there's still a lot of study and a lot of speculation going on with black holes. But just in my simple scientific mind, it says <laughs> that could very well be what these things are. It's just pushing, you know, the universe into from into another point of singularity, into another universe, into another bubble, right? So the quantum foam. Be becomes as Deepak Chopra would say, as is the micro, whereas, which is where we refer to quantum foam. So is the macro. So that model for the micro fits logically and mathematically at this point in some models to you know to the larger, and it makes sense to me. Hmm. So. That's why a lot of the UFO stuff, you see things, you know, popping in, popping out, you know, which would mean that perhaps it's dimensional, interdimensional travel or transdimensional travel. I mean, there's all many, so many, you know, concepts once you start to just grasp this and accept it for what it is without, you know, really getting down and wallowing with it. Because right. if you wallow too much with it, you'll just get a big headache. One of the things that you mentioned during your course, too, that, that changed my view of UFOs is, you know, in physical, traditional physics, you know, we think, we assume anyway, wrongly assume, that the fastest thing is the speed of light. But you talked about the speed of thought. And if, if these extraterrestrials are traveling at the speed of thought, we don't even know what that speed is. 
that opens up that opens up a, a, a ton of possibilities. That Russell Targ and uh, uh, Elizabeth Rauscher, the two their PhD physicists, they've both written extensively, independently, and together on the speed of thought being faster than the cosmological constant of the speed of light. And, and they've got the math to prove it, which, remember, uh, all great physicists who are truly worth who they claim to be will stand up and say that this could all be bullshit. I mean, we, yep, we can prove it mathematically, but it could all be bullshit. Why? Because mm -hmm. it's only based on what we know now. It's only based on what we know now. It's an interpretation based on what we think we know now. It could change tomorrow. Yeah. New revelation. Some new you know, spark of wisdom comes from something, and suddenly the, the equations of today are gone for tomorrow. So it's a new thing, a new interpretation, a new wisdom, a new understanding uh, of all these things. And I, we're just getting closer and closer to it. And I think uh, the key is, has got to be stay away from belief. Believing is easy. Everybody yeah. believes something. Everybody believes something. Even if you believe there is nothing, that's still a belief. So, and beliefs are pretty much indefensible in my book. You have to work toward knowing something. And that requires you to roll up your sleeves and do. And in this case, do the work in the physical mm -hmm. and the non-physical. Because that's when that connection, that bridge uh, is completed. And you are just as you are going, holy shit. I, <laughs> I don't even know what to think now. Right. You know, right. Just don't Start talking to your dog and, you know, doing everything. But. <laughs> but the whole the speed of thought, to me, too, directly, two things. The speed of thought and the observer effect both directly sort of tie into me for remote viewing. Because if I'm able to remote view things that are at a distance in a different time, then I'm viewing them with what the... time. It's not distant. Right. Yeah, I mean, exactly. 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 Omnipresent because it travels by every possible path. So, uh, yeah, you have access to it just sitting right where you are. That's the beauty of it. You have the ability to go to an altered state of consciousness, detect the waveform expression of whatever you're looking at, decoding it in your conscious mind, your brain, your biological brain, and objectifying it, mm -hmm. writing it down, capturing it. So you can look at it and hold it and be with it and see it and evaluate that, right? And you can develop an empirical evaluation of, was that, did I imagine that or was that something real? Did I really see that? And it, that's why the sketches and the, you know, the verbal sensory data, all those things are so important because those become your evidence of what you're detecting, decoding, and objectifying in that metronomic cadence. It's a... It's a powerful concept, and it's not about going from here to there. It, it is accepting and understanding that you're already there. You're yeah, already connected. Uh, yeah, everything is there all the time. Yeah, whether you're going to try to, you know, access the, you know, the the waveform expression of uh, something on the backside of Pluto, right? It's not about projecting consciousness to Pluto. It is simply about that waveform expression of what's there is 
already you're standing in it. That's mm -hmm. again back to Itzhak Bentov. That's where the concept of the holographic matrix field came into play, right? So it's not about going from here to there or there to there. You're already in it. You're already there. You are in a holographic matrix field of the waveform expression of all things. I don't know what the heck my dog is doing out there. It seems unattended. But hopefully he'll get tired. He barks a lot and he needs to go drink some water. That's what I do too. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that's like one you know um when i first we did the first target you know i went in I, you know following the, it was like the first three stages was that first target and and i'm doing it and, and i'm like looking at this stuff and i'm like this just makes no sense i don't know what i'm doing you know i'm just you know, and, and I'm and I'm wrestling with myself a little bit about the imagine. Is like, am I just making this up in my head, or or, or what's happening here? And uh, and then I, I complete the process, and then you reveal the target, and then I'm like, holy crap! Like like, how is that possible? How did all these random pieces of information be the target? In the target, like that that one target was so obscure. It was like that salt mine target. With the the uh, it's, uh, it was the lake over the yeah top of the yeah it was such an obscure target and yet here I am drawing like a whirlpool and sensing salt and and, and all these things yeah. that would had to do with that target and, and I was just like I, I was a little bit freaked out at, at first when I when I was like wow you know and I'm not the only one and, and then it gets even weirder because everybody else is getting. Some of that information Boat, too. Barges, yeah, pools, uh, trees falling into something, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, and uh, it, I just never, I never worry about. I mean, you would think, like, if you're responsible for a class of thirty or forty people, that you might fret a little bit, like, oh shit, are, you know, are, are they gonna get it? Are they gonna do well in this? Um, and. I guess probably in the early years of teaching it, that may have crossed my mind a lot. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but uh, after having been with this for over 35 years, it's now I, I, I you have to believe what you say. If it's an inherent ability within every human being and this thing, coordinate remote viewing, is simply a tool to extract, right? You're just extracting. You're purposely asking for, you know, temperatures, tastes, textures, sounds, smells, right? Dimensionals, uh, energetics. Uh, you're you're specifically asking for visuals, right? You're you're specifically asking for emotional impact, uh, you know, aesthetic data, that kind of stuff. You're specifically asking for it, right? Emotional data, aesthetic data, intangibles, etc. You're going to specifically take an intangible and break it down into other categories that are going to be there, and then you're going to go into stage six and you know widest opening of the aperture, and, and there you go. So, yeah, it is your what you shared with us with everyone here, which is when you're first doing it, you're thinking. I don't know what, you know, how am I supposed to, how am I supposed to come up with a texture? You know, I put my pin down, you know, textures. How the hell is that supposed to happen? You know, texture is what, you know, because 
you're trying to discover what are your principal modalities of, per, of perception and which ones are going to be your non-principal modalities of perception. Remember, as I taught you in class, that everybody walks in uh, with some idea that, oh, well, I'm visual. I'm really visual. I see things all the time and I'm, I'm accurate. Every time I see them, I'm accurate. Yeah, well, no, you're not. I can prove it to you, but go ahead <laughs> with your bad self, right? But your, if you're going to be a visual viewer, your perceptions are going to be visual. How are they going to come to you? It's not a film. It doesn't show up like a television. No, it uh, doesn't. You know, image does it? It does. So like, I didn't see anything. I just this, drew it. Exactly. So you're in this fledgling, uh, you know, baby step time where you are reopening this ability that has always been with you, and you're trying to establish a language between your conscious mind and your unconscious mind that says, show me these things. Or, and then again, as I said, there some people are not visual, they're auditory. So they'll hear the texture, rough, wavy, you know, uh, popped. Jeez, I didn't think that the gardeners would be here today. I'm sorry. <laughs> and those guys with their gas weed whackers are just maddening, aren't they? I don't hear them. So you can't hear him? Oh, yeah. awesome. I, I mean, I can hear him so badly, it's it's causing me to pause. Um, and so you're, uh, you struggle with that, and everybody does. And some people give up. Some people are like, I can't do that. That's ridiculous. What do you mean I'm, you know, smell? I'm supposed to smell something? Yeah, actually, you can smell things. Now, am I a big olfactory viewer? Absolutely not. I am not. Smells don't, you know, if I if you're detecting and decoding a waveform expression that is a smell, uh, you have I have to work at that to get it. Can do I get them? Yes, but it's cuz I I make myself get it. I mean, I won't just pass it by. Mm -hmm. So I might at first go, you know, I I'm not sensing any odor here, no smell. So, all right, no smell. And I'll go to the next thing, you know, colors or temperatures, textures, tastes, sounds, right? And so each one of those things, when you put your pen there and state your intention, okay, I, I need, what kind of energetics are here? So am I, is there thermal? Is there hydraulic? Is there electrical? Is there mechanical? Is there, you know, a combustion? I mean, what energetics? Is there, is it, uh, you know, sonar, radar, radio, television? Those are energetics, right? Waveformings. Those are broadcast things. So you have to work uh, and what will happen is your unconscious mind will figure out how to roll this up and how to package this and give it to your conscious mind. Mm -hmm. This does. As long as you keep working at it, which was what was so impressive about you as you're just articulating this. Because I'm going to tell you, when I was in a remote viewing unit, when I sat down the first time and Gabrielle Pettengale said, okay, well, so remember what I showed you on the board? I'm thinking, okay, what did you show me on the board? You showed me a bunch of stuff. So what, what? Show me what? An ideogram. And I was like, oh, yeah. Okay, an ideogram. So she gives me the coordinates. She goes, well, you, you have to write the coordinates. Oh, so I'm writing the coordinates, right? That's how stupid I was about it. I mean, they didn't have a manual. They didn't have a 
training outline or a program of instruction. So uh, I I wrote the coordinates down. You know, I, I actually wrote them the first time. I wrote them all the way across. Mm-hmm. So I did two sets of four all the way across. I, I wrote them. I didn't stack them like you're supposed to stack them. I had to screw that up and then be corrected by Gabrielle, who said, no, 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 no. Write one, two, three, four, underneath, five, six, seven, eight ideograms. Right. But I said, well, it's hard to write an eight and then respond with an ideogram. She goes, just do it. <laughs> and so, right, you're thinking, you know, so what's supposed to happen? Is somebody supposed to grab my hand and push it across? Is it like some sort of a Ouija mm-hmm. experience here that's, you know, something's going to drift my hand across? Uh, and one of the things that I, you know, became really considerate of is this is the, the most narrow opening of the aperture. Right perception this is not something that you need to spend a lot of time with this is your first graphic representation of the target site this is simply establishing a foothold in the target nothing more nothing less don't quibble with this just you start the you move your hand you move your hand as soon as you come off that last digit you move your hand now something will materialize. It will not just be a straight line across. Right. It could be, but it's typically not. There's something embedded in that because something from your unconscious mind through your conscious mind as you are objectifying, meaning taking those, writing down those coordinates and then responding from left to right, you there is encoded data in that ideogram. And then you go through the A, B, C component decoding it. What's the A? Retracing it, right? So it, it ca- forces you to go back and retrace it. And you're saying to yourself, is there motion here? Is this up and down, up and down, up and down? Does this rise up and angle across? Or is this a, is this a, does this go way up and arch over and come back down again? Or is this wavy across? Or is there, is there a straight, but then it becomes wavy, right? That's mm-hmm. a different thing. So that becomes, you now have to go to the B component, right? Is it natural or is it man-made? Well, when you first start, how the hell do I know? You know you're like, well, 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 how am I supposed to determine that? You know, how am I supposed to determine that? Mm-hmm. Gabrielle said, well, for me, I see a texture in my head I see a texture so I went okay let me see if I can equate a texture to something man-made or something uh, natural you just have to man-made or natural it's the component right man-made or natural so you are she goes now don't just take your hand off the page and start thinking it put your pin on the ideogram and with your pin on the ideogram that is a symbolic uh, signal line contact gesture it's a gesture it does you know but it's a it's a ritual so you put your pen on the paper on the ideogram close your eyes descend into an alpha wave state right because if you're thinking about it you're where beta Mm -hmm. high beta so descend go down relax take a deep breath and exhale and say to yourself okay show me how to determine is this natural or is it man-made and for me, 
I, I always get the two same pieces of data. If it's not, if it's man-made, it will be a, an, I'll see an angle of black marble. So I'll see like a, a black, like looking up close to a, a slab of black marble mm -hmm. or black granite, I should say polished black granite, but I see the angle at the corner of it. As soon as I see that, as soon as it rises up out of the darkness for me, man-made for natural, the, the lichen that grows on a rock on a stone that has a, uh, you know, multicolored, you know, multi-shaded green, but the edges are irregular and raised up right off the stone. Mm -hmm. uh, when I see that it, it is natural. That's how I, I don't quibble with it. It's natural. It's a narrowest opening in the aperture. You're, you're looking at something, you know, this far away. Yeah. So, uh, figuratively speaking. So you just, you know, you just, you write it now. And then you go to the C component. Is it, is it a mountain? Is it a structure? Is it a life form? Is it water? Is it land? Is it a land water interface? Seven categories. Right. So again, how do you determine that? For me, uh, I would see it. I mean, I would see a small piece of it, like, a. I would see a stream bed with stones in it. That's a land water interface. Again, don't quibble with it. If that's the texture that you see or that comes to you, that's land water interface. If it, it's a big mountain, you see a mountain in the distance or a, a visual of a mountain, it's a mountain and you do it that way. If it's people or animals or microbes or something else that goes into the category of life form, right? So. All of that is a struggle for people the first time they go through it. It's, it's like, it's not, it feels like nonsense. I can tell you that I really quibbled with myself for weeks. I couldn't get out of my own way. Hmm. I'm a good soldier, meaning I just do what people tell me to do when, you know, when I'm in a learning environment like that. And I think that's what allowed me to learn it faster than anybody else had learned it, uh, according to Fern and... Uh, and Dr. Jack Verona. So when I walked, came in there, they said that the training program was 12 to 18 months long. Whew, that's a long time to learn to do something in the military. 12 to 18 months. That's like learning to be a coder or something. Mm -hmm. right? So when I became operational in four months, uh, you know, Fern said, so why do you think, you know, he brought me in the office when he, told me I was operational. Why do you think, you know, that you learned it this fast? And I said, because for, I just, you know, once I got past the initial quibbling with myself and I start, I got feedback, I got my target feedback. And when I got the target feedback was, Oh shit. Like, dude, just like you. Yeah. And yeah. You're going, Oh, all that, all that <laughs> mysterious, you know, banging my head against something, you know, in the ether and and now it makes sense and now i just express gratitude thank you you know thank you to me for showing you know coming up with that language between the unconscious mind and the conscious mind mm -hmm. allowed me to capture that there right and that's why we do not spend a bunch of time in in stage one split ideograms and all this other crap that you've heard other people talking about <laughs> yes it means nothing like that one poor guy that came into the class that was trained by somebody else mm -hmm. he was going, uh, yeah i'm looking at like four pages of ideograms i'm going buddy 
buddy, buddy, buddy. No, 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 no. You know, if you're detecting and decoding and objectifying four pages worth of data, you should be well into stage three by now and not back on stage right. one. Yeah. Yeah. Taking and taking. Yeah, I, I, I was quick Not with the right. stages. Like, I, I, my, my, my stage one would take maybe two, three minutes. That's how long it should take. You know, stage two, not much more than that either. Stage two should be 15, 20 minutes. And then, you know, stage, really working it. stage three took me a, a while. I, I would say, like, stage three for me was usually the longest one. Yeah. Um, it's kind of inherently one of the longest ones because it's a visual stage. You know, it's easy to close your eyes and you know, come up with a texture or a verbal descriptor of a dimension. Yes, if you get the if you get the feeling of it comes to you visually, then go to the left hand side of the page of stage two and sketch it. I mean, sketch the texture, mm -hmm. right? Sketch a simple dimensional sketch. Probe it and lay it. Oh, you know, it's hard or it's porous or it's airy or it's something else, right? Uh, but you're doing that to capture, to build verbal sensory data relevant to the waveform expressions of this of this target, the, the target gestalt, right? And remember that I said to you, we will always work complex gestalts, not not simple gestalts. This will never be. You know, describe what's in the box. This will be, you know, describe something like your first target. You know, a, a salt mine, an underground salt mine, mm -hmm. a lake over the top of it, and a drill rig that thinks it's drilling like 40 yards to the left of it, but drills right through the cavern of the salt mine, right, with a 38-inch drill bit. <laughs> <laughs> and what happens next? So uh, absolute terror and panic and, you know, all the stuff you saw there, it's a, it's a good target. It's yeah. a complex target. But uh, for a stage three target, it's an awesome target. It was a great target. And, and it was, like, amazing because after that first one, after I saw my own data and I saw the data that other people pulled from that, it made it easier for the next target because then there was, like, no more yeah. doubt. It's like, all right, I don't have to sit here and question myself. I just – Write whatever, like, like for me, I would just sit there and write whatever. Uh, I would follow the structure and just write the first things that were coming to me. I wasn't thinking, I don't know if I was thinking about it. I don't, know, I don't even know if I was visualizing them or, or like, I didn't even think about that. I was just writing the first thing that would constantly come to me. And, good, and when I, you listen. And yes. when I, when I, when I follow that, like by the time we got to, uh, the one that really got me was the robot, that giant robot, and I hate that target. And I, 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 I and I nailed it. Like I was so. Yeah. A lot of people did. Like, like I was like, okay, well, it's definitely mechanical. You know, I, 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 I drew like the, the leg and the knee perfectly when I did the sketch. And the other thing that that really got me was I drew the freaking bless had drawn the the breastplate of it and labeled uh -huh, it yellow yeah, <laughs> and i was like how did that happen <laughs> yeah. you did you did you did perfectly well and i was really happy with the whole class and remember sandeep you know yeah like, yeah yeah because i've done like, some of his meditation skeptic. things i'm still in you touch know, with this him. kind of quiet little skeptic he comes in and after his and he killed it he blew it away <laughs> Remember, he's like, he's like, please share this, please share this. I'm like, Sandeep, you know, 
<laughs> teaching right now. No, 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 you need to share this. Okay, we'll show your session to the class. So we pull it up, and he's like, he's gone and snagged pictures, screenshotted pictures. Yeah. And put them in next to his sketches, right? Mm-hmm. So we're scrolling through it. He's like, see, see. Yeah, it was. He was funny. He was funny. Yeah, yeah. And, and like, it, it's just so so real. It is real. I mean, it's it's amazing. But then, this is where kind of like like after after the class, and I had a couple of days to think about it. You know, I'm thinking like, man, if the government figured this out, you know. 60, 70 years ago, whatever it has been when they started messing with this. They started in 73. 73. They an Intel collection tool starting in 78. So, so if they've been doing it since then, um, what else have they been doing? And how much do they really know about reality and, and psychic abilities? And like, like they obviously know much, much more than they lead on. And if they know that much more, how much are they manipulating it? You know, if they can, if we, if, if I can view it with six simple steps, I wonder, then can it also be manipulated too, through, through another technique? Well, I mean, yeah, of course it can. It goes back to that free agency thing again, yeah. right? Um, anything. And I've answered this, had to address this question uh, throughout the years. People going, well, you know, aren't you afraid that this is going to fall into the wrong hands? And, you know, my response is, well, you know, it's freaking been in the wrong hands. Right? It's, it's already in the wrong hands. This is a realization for the people of the world, not, you know, not just for some small cell in the Navy or the Air Force or the Army, using it as an intel collection capability. No, 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 no. This needs to be out there to, you know, open people's eyes about who they are and what they are, what, what potentials that they have. So, uh, I this goes back to my, my ex. Can you, you not? Can you hear those guys out there now? No. Really cool. Yeah, good, good sound deadening quality on the mic. Then, um, <clears throat> they, uh, you, you don't if you start trying to wrap your head around those kinds of things. They're not within your purview to probably ever understand or get the truth of. Uh, so in the moment, you focus on the things that are changing your, you know, that are changing you in the mm -hmm. moment to empower you to give you focus and purpose in what you're doing and it is there are a lot of people that get wrapped around conspiracy theories not i'm not saying you uh but there are a lot of people that that becomes the elixir of life for them right you know going from one conspiracy theory to the next to the next to the next lying about shit like you know stephen greer uh mm -hmm. you know saying things like oh i got snagged up off the the, you know, the, the head of Army intelligence, you know, s swept me up off the streets of Washington, D.C. and ferreted me off in a very threatening manner. Really? A little old gray-haired three-star general uh, threatened <laughs> you, big steroid, you know, human growth hormone, uh, you know, weightlifter? Uh, I don't think so. And 
again, I would say this to his face. You know, if he was ever on your show, I'd be like, bullshit. <laughs> You're just making shit up. You're just, oh, they took me to a hotel. Okay, what hotel? Well, uh, I didn't catch the name. Really? If somebody drove you threateningly to a hotel, what'd they do? Put you in a freaking trunk? So if they didn't put you in a trunk. I mean, you know, was there still a general like handcuffing you? Did he beat the shit out of you? Uh, or did he have like some big MPs with him or some big intel guys? You know, lots of details that people don't ask. And he just throws that stuff out there yeah. in the documentary. Oh, and there were CIA uh, officers in the, in the hotel room uh, and some Air Force officers, too. Really? How did you know that? How did you know they were in the CIA? And then makes the claim that they, uh, what was it? They threatened me. They said to me, who do you think you are talking to aliens using your CE5 protocol? Mm. Really? Yeah. Like they, you really think that, but here's the deal, Gary, is that people believe that. Yeah. yeah. That's why he does it. It draws a crowd. You know, it, it puts him back into this, uh, alpha male position within that community mm -hmm. and it gets to the point where you the guys that are in those communities like that i spoke in that community multiple times uh yeah back in the 90s yeah but it, it was like this is i can't i can't settle in with this i everybody here is all wound up about shit they're all you know chips coming out of their nose when they blow their nose it's like it's a booger what are you talking about a chip it's like what are you talking you know it's it's dried mucus it's not a chip you know and it just mm -hmm. every, like everyday people off the street saying this kind of stuff or some guy sat and just wept i mean at breakfast one time just wept and said that you know aliens had come and, and taken his teeth went they came and took your teeth and he was crying, telling me this. I was like, well, okay, you know, I guess you could look at, you know, these visitations uh, as there could be races that are species that could be coming here and, you know, seeing us as lab animals. I mean, that's certainly a possibility, mm -hmm. at least, right? Yeah. And so I don't discount that, but it just seems to be such a random thing and it, it becomes the pain that colors everything that these people see say do for the rest of their lives you can't live like that you'll never achieve what we're supposed to achieve within this global society if we keep anchoring ourselves on it with those kinds of things yeah where we you know the only thing that keeps us anchored to it is anger sensationalism mm -hmm. outright lies uh you know and fabrications to keep us you know it's why can't we just say look of course there are other civilizations out there i mean there are several mathematical models that support it of course oh, absolutely you know and don't be stupid don't be a stupid human and say <laughs> that oh well you know there are only this many habitable that there's a actually a category that cosmologists apply to uh to certain galaxies and in all the galaxies that they can look at they go well there's only one or two possibly habitable planets what the hell are you talking about it's like what that the only thing out there has to be breathe air and right. have skin yeah it's ridiculous grow lettuce in it because with sun i mean 
they could live under oil and mm-hmm. <laughs> acetone. You know, you have no idea what yeah. they are. Yeah. If, if everything's made out of energy anyway, they could live off of absolutely any type of thing. <laughs> no telling what's out there, but I can tell you that there are other, other races, other civilizations, other species. I mean, we looked at them in the remote viewing unit, as I shared with you guys. Mm-hmm. That's a, so, so there's a new book out. Uh, something about Skinwalker Ranch. Uh, somebody, G- Gary, you know, who uh, Gary was that was in, he's on Clubhouse, one of my mo- moderators. Uh-huh. And he was in the class. Yeah. He came in a couple of times, right? So <laughs> just to check in with people. Uh, yeah, he had read it and, gave, and reported uh, about it on Clubhouse when we were there, like mm-hmm. two Fridays ago. So I, I thought, okay. So look, what this says is that they used uh, Joe McMonagle as a remote viewer to validate or look at something beyond the physical, you know, into a into a moment and into a potential and to describe what actually took place at this particular place. So, you know, over a series of moments or what's called an event arc of time. Right. Uh, And. The big takeaway for that from that for me was, well, we've been saying that we were, you know, at the remote viewing unit, the remote viewers were constantly working these, not constantly, but were working these historical off-planet targets, and they were doing it to, to build this historical record of what we were seeing and what we were experiencing and what, you know, what we saw them doing and how we understood them to be communicating, how amongst themselves, uh, were they aware of us or were they indifferent to us in some way, or were they oblivious to us? Uh, what kinds of craft were they in? How did they dress? How did they look? You know, uh, it was, these were not front loaded sessions. They were blind, but the viewers, what you produced mm-hmm. had no idea what it was until they gave you this feedback. And the feedback was just like this, kind of a historical uh, summary and you were like holy crap you know that's that's what I was doing that's what I was looking at and it, yeah that's what you were looking at so now you start looking back over 20 years or 30 years of people doing that work on that target that planet that place that thing that you know event and and you start to look at all the, you know, the parallel corroborative data that's there. It is, uh, it's, it, it makes an impression on you. It's amazing. It's, yeah. 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 I mean, you mentioned Steve. And he, I, he won't do my show. So <laughs> oh, of course not. About that. Yeah, he, and that, that's a level of arrogance that's there. I mean, you know, but you should, you got to understand what you're dealing with here. So you got a guy that stopped being an emergency physician and for whatever reason was brought into that community. Mm-hmm. And then that community, they were all abuzz. Why? Because they've never had a physician, you know, standing up to represent them. Mm-hmm. So it, it's a huge deal for them. They're like, oh, well, now we're going to get somewhere. Now we're going to get somewhere. This is a smart articulate physical guy and he's telling us that he's gonna he's gonna you know he's gonna break the 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 door on this and get inside and 
reveal it all. And I'm sure that that's where he was, his heart was when he first started this. But the reality of working in that world is, as you've heard me say many times, is you're not going to know what the government knows until the government decides that there's a reason for you to know it. Right. Now, that might piss you off. I would say I wouldn't be pissed off about it because what does pissed off about it get you? It's more pissed off. True. Right? Yeah. It, it, you're not going to force anything. It's just like every president that comes in and says, oh, yeah, yeah. well, yeah, because they get asked on the talk shows, right? Where are you going to? Are you going to open up the books on the UFO thing and the aliens and stuff? Oh, yeah. When I get in there, I will. Mm -hmm. I, as I tell people, the people that run those special access programs, they couldn't care less what the president wants. You know, the, they don't they have no they have no law that says that they have to tell the president everything. Now, that may disturb some presidents, but I'm certain that they get told no. And if you think that doesn't happen for a president, you're wrong. It does. You can just like, like uh, George Bush. My good gosh. Now I hear it. This guy's trying to cut a <laughs> hole through the wall with that thing. Uh, George Bush, uh, after on 9-11, on you know, 21 years ago, when, or 20 years ago, when that, when that occurred, <clears throat> he demanded to be flown in Air Force One back to uh, Washington, D.C. And the Secret Service refused. He was stomping, pissed off, you know, throwing things. So they flew him to an Air Force base in, I think, in Louisiana or mm -hmm. Alabama, Louisiana. And he was there and he got a briefing. And then... When he got back on the plane, he demanded again to be flown to Washington, D.C. By God, I want to go to Washington, D.C., and I'm not taking no for an answer. And so he was made aware. Uh, Mr. President, uh, Air Force One actually flies based on the beck and call and the allowances of the Secret Service. We are not going to fly you back to Washington, D.C. In our opinion, it is unsafe. All due respect, take a seat. Please, sir, we're going to the next place. He found out that he could huff and puff all he wanted, but presidents are not this big, you know, swinging bat that gets to tell everybody what to do all the time. There are parameters to this. So they don't get read on to every freaking thing that is in the intel community. They don't. And frankly, they don't want to know. So, you know, they have other things to attend to. Uh, but they don't get to tell people within the government what to do. Mm -hmm. They they get to be a president. They're they're supposed to lead. They're supposed to work with their cabinets to a, 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 you know achieve certain things. But they are not going to you know convince whoever the keeper of the scroll is for you know the UFO stuff. Uh, that I'm sure it's a high ranking SE you know senior executive SE you know, SEC, senior executive civilian, you know, probably God knows, you know, I'm sure. And they're probably ancient and they probably, you know, they pick their, their uh, successors mm -hmm. and they do, and they train them and they read them on. And it is very closely guarded. And 
I don't know the reason why it's closely guarded, but I know that no matter no amount of posturing or lying or you know screaming or faking shit is going to make them go, oh well, okay, god darn man, we just thought you guys were never going to shut up. So all right, here, you know, here it all is. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, they're not going to do that until it the need is there for them. I don't know what that need will be. Yeah. Now, some people really quibble over that, right? They mm -hmm. really get angry about it, but it's like, it is what it is. And yeah. I'm okay. You just have to understand it goes back to the moment and you, and you can know that there are other worlds, other civilizations, other races, and that they are here and that they visit and that they pass by. And I frankly think I would not be surprised if there's a particular species that sees us as lab animals. Because I think that the rest of them kind of fly by looking down at us going to their kids. Aren't you glad you don't live there? <laughs> Look, at Look at them. Look yeah. at what they're doing to this place. You know, how they're you know, raping the seas and polluting the planet and destroying the ozone and blah, 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 blah. You know, warring with each other. Look at all the money they spend on weaponry and all that crap. Aren't you glad we don't live there? Mm -hmm. you know like the jetsons go by i mean i i may i know i'm making light of it and i right. i think all the all these ca all the categories the the ones that observe and i think there's probably some that want to study there's some that maybe have ill intent and then i think there's some too that probably want to assist in our evolution so we can get past this point i don't i don't know about that i i think that that's not part of why we're here. Mm -hmm. I don't think that they're, you know, I, I understand what you're saying and I do respectfully understand what you're saying and I appreciate it. But I believe that mankind is responsible for mankind and that we were put here for a reason and given a mission and capabilities and free agency. And it is our responsibility to, live rightly to protect this home, this planet, to take care of each other, you know, to, to, to live healthy lives of, you know, gaining knowledge and sharing knowledge and working together, uh, all of us on this planet and not uh, what we have come, become, you know, where we, we are willing to kill other people in the name of God mm -hmm. or your interpretation of God or or, or for oil, or for anything else. You know, again, that goes back to just what I, I, I don't want to say I know it. I just want to say that that's my strong interpretation of, of this life and why we're here. And that pulls together a lot of threads from a lot of different things, including some theological concepts. Right. But primarily, I think, you know, we come from one of those other places, one of those other races. And I don't know if we were an experiment or if we were by on purpose and by design, you know, placed here and given the abilities that we were given and said, evolve and do great things. And we'll see what, you know, we'll see you in, in 25,000 years or something like that, mm -hmm. which would be nothing, right? Um, <laughs> in the overall spectrum of things. Yeah. And, and, and I, do know that we are eternal beings. I do know that. I have no 
I'm not, I, I cannot quibble. I, I agree with you hundred percent there. So, and if we are eternal, then we are omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent. We possess all of those qualities that we have ascribed to deities in our belief mm -hmm. structures. And it is why that was separated from humanity. And, but a obviously a recognized capability, right, or potential, or it would have never even been mentioned in Scripture, right? That would not be the big end state. Somebody realized that that was a potential within humanity. They, you, right, you follow my yeah, logic. Yeah, I follow it. They realized that that capability existed, so they split it out and said, oh, no, that, that only comes later. If you believe in this interpretation based on, you know, this is this interpretation is omnipotent. It is eternal. It is omniscient, right? That's who you must follow. This is this is what you must, you know, believe in, and then you will get to know it later. And I, to me, it's just a huge, a huge lie perpetrated on humanity. Do you ever wonder? You ever wonder why or by who? What? You ever wonder why and by who perpetuated? You've, you actually brought up two points that are kind of related. Like one of the things, um, you know, I was talking about extraterrestrials wanting to maybe assist us. Um, and that's also been one of our huge downfalls too, is our looking for a savior. We're always yeah. expecting somebody to come out of the ether to, to save us rather than to sit down and take responsibility for ourselves and control our own actions. Well said. Uh, it, it, it is absolutely how I see, you know, how I see the world and our role in it. Absolutely, Gary. That's how I see it. And I've, you know, I've been a, a researcher and a searcher of those kinds of things, and I've been on both sides of that fence and argument, as deep as one could get. You know, <laughs> to be a high priest in the Mormon Church and to have been ordained that, and if uh, you, you know, my patriarchal blessing says that, you know, I will be, you know, a great leader within the church, uh, and even goes so far as to say that. Uh, mention the quorum of the 12 apostles meaning I or a general authority it says that in what's called a patriarchal blessing so there are in the Mormon church uh, when you are you know or given the Melchizedek priesthood which is uh, what adult males get or return missionaries are when they go uh, you go through the temple ceremony and you get in your garments take out your endowments and you are, <clears throat> you're given that priesthood, and that priesthood comes with, uh, based on the doctrines of the church, it comes with certain powers and responsibilities, that, you know, like the laying on of hands and stuff like that. Although I've laid on a lot of hands and I've given a lot of blessings, along with you know whoever was helping me, and I never cured a damn thing, you know. So if somebody was going to die, me coming in and rubbing consecrated oil on the crown of their head and, you know, giving them a blessing, it may have made them feel a little bit better, like mm -hmm. that much time, uh, but it never stopped whatever was getting ready to happen. So again, you know, it's like, I, and I also remember something stupid just to tell you a story is that my wife at the time, Debbie and I were, we were driving from, we were married, but we were driving from 
uh, BYU. We were heading uh, to Warland, Wyoming, to her, her parents' home. <laughs> and we were just poor college kids, right? So I got this bright idea coming up out of the mountains that I was going to, like, turn the car off and in coast. You know, that was what I was doing. It was a Mustang GT, uh, 67 Mustang GT. Well, it created some sort of a vacuum based on the altitude dis differences and mm -hmm. maybe up a line or something like that. Because when I got to the bottom, uh, I could not start the car. I mean, I could <laughs> not start the car. And I was it was cranking, going, you know, and my, I'm just like, oh, my God. And my wife goes, why don't you use your priesthood? I'm like, What? Why don't I use my priesthood? I mean, what do you want me to do? Like, put some consecrated oil on the dashboard here and and command the car to you know to, to turn on. But you see, that is exactly what she wanted me to do. <laughs> you know, and I was like, oh, for Pete's sake, no, I'm not going to do that. We didn't even be able to do it with a straight face. Just command the car to start. So we sat there for a while, and I don't know, things equaled up, and that, like two hours later, and um, I just, I just tried it one more time, and I had enough juice to crank it over and start it. Don't ever coast down out of the mountains. You know, out of the Wasatch Range and coasting down into into Wyoming, stupid idea. I mean, I figured it out later. You know, I did some reading and was like, "Oh, that's what happened." Yeah, don't do that. Um, but when you go, you know, later in the church, you you can be ordained a high priest, and that is when someone says that. I want you to be like a first counselor or a second counselor and a bishopric, or we're going to make you a bishop, <clears throat> and or you can be in the stake presidency, which is over a, a number of bishops and the wards, they're called. So a stake presidency is much bigger uh, population of believers that you're responsible for. And so I was in both of those. I was never a stake president. I was never a uh, a bishop, but I, I became a, a counselor, and a second counselor in a state presidency, and first counselor in a bishopric, and <clears throat> I, I, I forget where I was going with this actually. But well, we were talking about people looking for saviors rather than taking responsibility. Yeah, it is. Uh, it it became for me. I looked at just. Being an analyst and a researcher, you know, and how I live my life, um, I just really began to feel like a hypocrite. Uh, and I, there were people in the congregation that looked to you as like this example of, of you know, spirituality and living your life with discipline and this kind of stuff. And I, I was not that guy. I wasn't that guy inside. I wasn't that guy in my head. Um, it was a really difficult time for me to be that and to come to this realization that this was, this is not what, you know, I, I thought it was, it's just not. And you're, you start to look at the systems of the church and you start to realize that this is a business. This is not a, a spiritual thing. Not really. It, it's a, it's a lot of smoke and mirrors mm -hmm. as are all, 
of them in my opinion, but this one is, you know, it's a business. It's a big business. And the educational process is, is pablum. It's repetitive. So, you know, like the Sunday school manuals and things like that, they're exactly the same lessons. They just like swap them around. They hand them, you know, they swap them around and give a, give a new writer gets a little take. So you get some different verb conjugations and things like that in there, but it's still the same message. And the message is, you know, be good and be stalwart and do what you need, the church tells you to do so that you're funding the church and so that you are present in the church. So you're, you have to pay your tithing, you have to go to the temple, you have to do all these things that keep, you know, that keep the churn going in the church. And so it's Sunday school manuals, it's home teaching manuals, it's all these things just become this repetitive process. And then other things began to fall apart for me. Um, there's a guy by the name of Paul Dunn, who was a general authority. Uh, <clears throat> he was a hugely popular uh, general authority who would speak to the entire church because uh, the prophet Spencer Kimball at the time would you know, line up the general authorities for these different times to speak to the entire church. And he would always tell war stories of like being in the Philippines campaign as an army guy. Uh, and they were always these close call harrowing things of, you know, uh, having a Japanese machine gun shoot the heel off of his boot, you know, or shoot the top off of his canteen and all these things. And him talking about, you know, the power of prayer and all these other things. Well, I, I took a decision-making class um, at BYU, and the professor of it was a retired Army colonel mm -hmm. who did fight in the Philippines. <clears throat> and he often told war stories to back up what he was teaching in the class, the decision-making course. And uh, he made a kind of a passing comment one time about, Paul Dunn, uh, about Elder Dunn, as he was referred to, but it was uh, it was harsh and it was really judgmental. And at the time, I kind of aspired to be like Paul Dunn, you know, uh, to be that kind of a spiritual voice and message at that time. But what I found out was, you know, as that class went on for a semester, probably two, at least two or three more times, he made these like these cutting comments about Paul Dunn. Basically, it was that what Paul Dunn is saying that he did, he didn't do. Well, <clears throat> as the internet developed and as other things that allow, as research tools developed for people, uh, it was found out that Paul Dunn was a complete fraud. Wow. So he didn't do any of the things that he said he did. He, he wasn't in any of the battles that he said he was in. And so now all of his televised lectures, all of these big messages out to all the military folks about, you know, live your life this way. And, and you know, these things will, you'll be protected and, you know, in the face of, uh, of absolute hell. Uh, and it all became it was just like a real gut punch for me. It was like, oh, my God, really? Seriously, the guy's a fraud. Now I connected the dots on what the colonel was saying. Uh, who made some comment like, yeah, what he really was doing was, you know, prying gold teeth out of dead Japanese. And he wasn't he wasn't a guy, uh, you know, that as he portrayed himself to be. 
Then, as I told you, when I got into uh, the activity, and the activity is, uh, if you want to know what that's about, folks, there's a book called uh, Killer Elite. Uh, Killer Elite. Uh, in fact, I, I have no idea how this guy got away with writing it, but he clearly had an insider telling him the history of this unit. Right. I mean, it uses all the code words for the operations and, you know, and operators, stuff like that. It's it's scary accurate. Uh, some people in the reviews have been, you know, negative toward it because they'll make comments like, well, it didn't teach you about how any of the operations, you know, how, how people were doing what they were doing in the operation. Well, of course they're not going to tell you that. <laughs> I mean, you know, are you kidding? Are you so deluded? I mean, just deal with the fact that they're telling you that these operations happened and here's, you know, this number of people, here's what it was called, here's where we were, and here's kind of what we did. But no, this guy wanted the recipe for every operation, like an operations order. Uh, but when I was there, uh, I was the what was called, I was the deputy executive officer or staff action control officer. And that organization was so controversial that the secretary of the army, John O. Marsh Jr. said, because he caught him in a lie one time, big, big, big scare. I mean, big, big surprise there, right? In the intel community, a lie. So <laughs> he said, he drew a line, a 50 meter, I mean, a 50 mile circle around around the Pentagon. And he said, anytime you move so much as one person, you know, one person outside of that 50 mile radius from wherever you happen to be for whatever reason, I don't care if they're going on leave to see their mama. He goes, I want to be briefed on it. So I was the guy that briefed him. <laughs> it was crazy. So I became aware of every program that we were doing because I had to go brief John O'Marsh Jr. several times a, a week, just me and the Secretary of the Army. Uh, and the point of my story here is, which was one of the final coup de gras for me uh, for organized religion, was I, I found out that there was a, a Mormon colonel, lieutenant colonel, who was an SF guy in that unit in the activity. And he had put together a program where they were taking kids out of the army that they selected for various reasons that were in the activity. They were sending them to uh, Utah, to Provo, to go through the language training mission uh, and the missionary training center, uh, posing as Mormon missionaries, uh, but spying for uh, the activity and using that right as a cover for there when i saw that i freaked and i went straight to this guy's office and i said hey you can't be doing this and he goes oh yeah we are and we've been doing it for a while and the church is witting i was like that is fucked up to do something in that part of my language that mm -hmm. is really bad i said that I said, that's it. You know, that for me, that is it. Yeah, I said, first of all, I had friends, uh, you know, I had my my uh, roommate in my dorm on, at BYU said he just came back from his mission and he goes, yeah, you know, it's really weird because we were down, I was in South America and he goes, and, and every, 
you know, people were always saying, you know, that they were they were in the CIA or something like that. He goes, we were just missionaries. So now I'm like, of course, well, now I get it, right? That they're being, people are going, these guys are spies. They're mm -hmm. not missionaries, they're spies. And, and so I wrote a, a letter to the first presidency of the church. And uh, I said, uh, I am... I am completely taken aback. I am gobsmacked that you would do something like this. And I demand with all respect an explanation for why you think this is an appropriate thing to do, to have boys pro, pro, posing as proselytizing Mormon missionaries who are really working for the activity. Can you freaking imagine that? They never responded. Six months later, I wrote another letter, attached the first letter to the back of it again, and sent it off, and even more strongly worded, I never got a response. Do you know why I didn't get a response? Why? Because a response would have been a confirmation. An acknowledgement, yeah. And I demanded, I said, if you're not going to answer this, excommunicate me from the church. Neither happened. Why? Because if they had excommunicated me, it would have been evidence that, in fact, they had read the letter and made the choice to excommunicate me versus tell me the truth about what they're doing. From that point forward, I, I was no longer part of that spiritual mob. Mm. I just stepped away from it. And it completely unraveled everything that I kind of built a life on at that point. And, you know, then I'm in the remote viewing unit. I left the activity to go to the remote viewing unit. And then uh, just like you experienced um, the, a whole new understanding of, of the world, of the universe, of my role in it, uh, my connection to it, uh, my access to it, uh, right? It changed everything for me. It filled a gap from a scientific uh, and absolute knowledge, you know, perspective, where before it was all smoke and mirrors and you know, hypocrisy and you know manipulations and other things. And I mean, you see how it just worked for me. I was yeah. like, oh my god, I left something that was one of the biggest parts of my life, uh, you know, for. 15 years, 20 years, 20, 20, 25 years, I guess. Hmm. When all you know, I went to BYU on a student leadership scholarship, on a wrestling scholarship, and on a ROTC scholarship. Uh, but <clears throat> yeah, it completely altered my, it, it, I came in a deflated, damaged, disbelieving, kind of hurt perspective. Uh, and then came into remote viewing and I know some people listening to this might say, Oh, well, yeah, that, so you just found, you know, you got, you got rid of one addiction and replaced it with another. Right. Um, mm -hmm. but viewing and that awareness, that's not, that, that wasn't an addiction. Right. Was a, you know, right. To, to, to me, it all sort of ties together. And now, you, you know, I, has that whole experience of going from, from the church into the remote viewing and having that change your perspective, um, how did all that um, influence you into do what you do 
you know, with, with you writing the book and teaching other people how to remote view and the whole experience, opening other people's minds up to that whole experience, you know, because that too also sort of ties into like, okay, we don't need a savior because we can do, we have a lot more capability than what we think or what we're told in or brainwashed into believing that we have. Yeah. Like, like, yeah. Is, that, is, is that part of the motivation for you to, to, to teach this? That was the absolute motivation. I mean, it was the reason that, as I said earlier, that, that I chose to violate a secrecy of, a security of. And I mean, I had a top secret special background investigation, so TSSBI. Um, I had, you know, official passport and all those kinds of things. But in 93, I said, um, I, I was convinced. I was convinced. And I, I think it was always in the back of my mind. And I also know that when I was at the 82nd Airborne Division, when I was an XO, an Airborne Battalion XO, of 2nd of the 505th Parachute Infantry Regiment, um, <clears throat> I talked often with Ed Dames. He would call right into the battalion headquarters. Mm -hmm. And at that time, we were very, very close friends. And I was actually a vice president, as was Mel Riley, with his company called SciTech. And I had been with him all to all around Washington, D.C., pitching, you know, various Beltway bandits, uh, even one of the belt, um, uh, one of the Beltway bandits that Bert Stubblebein worked, worked at. Uh, and he established our bona, f bona fides, and we went and talked to these guys, but nobody ever bit. And so Ed was in New Mexico, in Albuquerque, and he was there because of, that was kind of the, the hub, the point of uh, origin for all of, our, all of our UFO work that we did there at the behest of the unit. So it was always Ed, Mel, and me, and we would fly there, and then we would go out to these various places and see these portals. And, you know, we all three get scanned at the same time. It was quite bizarre if I haven't told you that story. Um, <clears throat> we spent many a night and, and we bumped into people like, that were just crazy interesting, like standing there on a hill looking for and waiting for the next vertical drop of a light uh, of a craft. And we hear a guy step up behind us, and it's Jacques Vallée, the guy that wrote, uh, you know, the, uh, several UFO alien mm -hmm. books. And with him is a guy is a is a physicist by the name of Ron Blackburn, who is a Lawrence Livermore in California physicist, and he is, looks like a, a really tall, narrow-faced Tom Hanks, <laughs> and. <clears throat> and he is uh, a brainiac and he's sitting there with these ridiculous instruments that I swear to you, if you looked at them, it was hard not to crack a smile because that he was measuring, you know, pulses and ambient waveforms and all this other stuff. And he was trying to track when these verticals would drop, you know, to see if he could get his jump or a spike in his instrumentation. Mm -hmm. So these things have got weird antennas on them in all directions. And he's, you know, walking around, tweaking them, changing things. It was just like a crazy place. It's like, I can't believe this, you know, Jacques Vallée and this new guy, Ron Blackburn. And then, of course, Ron Blackburn became one of my students. 
but you asked the question, uh, why did I teach? Well, I, I think I taught kind of out of necessity when I first, uh, when I first left the army because <clears throat> I left the army and remember I was given an other than honorable discharge. Yeah. Uh, I mean, just like that. And, and it was devastating to me. It was devastating to my mother and my father, uh, particularly my father because he was a career army officer, right? As was my grandfather. So uh, I lived with that for a number of years. And I, when the war started uh, in Afghanistan, uh, before we even got to Iraq, but <clears throat> I kind of had this call to come back in and serve in some capacity. And you know, Patty was adamant, as was I, you're not going to go back and you're not going to go back and be a shooter. There was actually a battalion uh, in a, an infantry battalion in San Diego, where I lived in uh, San Marcos at the time, that the, the battalion commander wanted me. He wanted me to come in and be an XO and then later take the battalion as he got promoted to colonel. And so we went through all the gyrations to make that happen. And I just thought, you know, if I'm going to do this, I'm not going to walk around with a with an OTH, you know, other than honorable discharge. It's not, it's not a dishonorable discharge, right? Uh, it's not the worst you can get, but it's not a honorable discharge. And so, for the rest of my life, if I ever, you know, tried to tell the story of my career, that would be there. So, I. Made lieutenant colonel, I pinned it on the day that I resigned, but now, uh, which means I don't really carry the rank. You have to actually be in the rank for three years before it actually sticks and counts. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> but I made that cut, and you know that was good to know. Uh, next would have been a full-time you know, battalion command select, which I'm sure before all this happened. When I made that decision to start writing the book, uh, in 1993, uh, it was a little naivete, I think. Uh, I had already written the manual because there was no manual in the unit, uh, despite the fact that some of those people had been there for 15 years. So they'd been there for 15 years, but they never wrote a manual or a POI or any kind of a you know slide deck or anything. Uh, it was just all hip pocket, you know, kind of training, which to me was very unsatisfactory. So <clears throat> having already written the, written the manual, my head was kind of spinning around the idea that, hey, you're a trainer. I mean, that's what you're really good at is being a trainer and an educator, uh, getting a point across on things and, you know, translating the impossible to people. And so I, you know, I thought, okay, then I, I need to write this book and I need to write this book and I need to tell the story of my journey through this. And I, the story needs to talk about transformation. And it needs to talk about uh, the positive things that come from this, as well as some of the uh, questionable, difficult things that you sort of kind of hinted on. Like there are some disturbing aspects to this because it's scary. And you articulated that. Mm -hmm. uh, before I took the reins and started speaking in this endlessly, <laughs> I apologize. Uh, but <clears throat> I, 
wrote the the book, Psychic Warrior, was first of all, I didn't call it that. I called it Comes the Watcher. That was my working title. And uh, it was 740 pages long. And Sean Coyne, who was my editor at the time, grabbed his assistant and like and over three weekends, they whittled 740 pages down to 238. Hmm. So in all honesty, I have not read the book. I just, I just <laughs> didn't want to read it and go, how dare you cut this out or cut that out? But I think it told more of a tragic story. That's kind of what people tell me, even though it was a good read for a mm -hmm. lot of people. Uh, I guess not if you were a really, you know, die in the wool skeptic or if you just hated me for telling that story. Uh, there's plenty of those out there. But I, I did not anticipate the wrath that was going to come my direction. I did not. I thought that because I was an airborne ranger, because I had, you know, perfect record, because I had done all the difficult things you know, six years squatting in the jungles of Central and South America, commanded an airborne rifle company for two years, commanded a ranger company for nearly that amount of time, uh, did the most difficult training. Company was so good, we got selected to go to the Kingdom of Jordan to train Jordanian rangers. The first time any U.S. military organization, particularly rangers, mm -hmm. had ever gone to do something like that. SF, Special Forces, you know, trainers, which is their mission. Right. They went, they were there, but never a ranger combat element to go there and, you know, and, and train with these guys or train them. <clears throat> so I thought all of that was clout. You know what I mean? I, I thought all of that was kind of money in the bank. It was kind of an equity. Uh, and it meant because I had seen, I had seen so many things happen throughout my career where um, <clears throat> somebody would do something that people would just go like, oh, my God, you know, really? He did that? Or, you know, for example, uh, when I was there's a colonel that I knew we worked together at the Defense Medical Material Program Office uh, at, Fort, at Fort Detrick. We were going to Dover, Delaware, where we were working on the KIAs that were coming back from the battlefield. Uh, the job then uh, was to, uh, and I didn't, I wasn't hands-on, but I was there as part of that. Uh, there were providers, PAs and nurse that were doing this stuff. They were removing tourniquets to see whether the tourniquet was put on properly. Uh, so to determine, you know, not fault of medic, but to say, is this a training issue, issue or is this a uh, an equipment issue? You follow? Mm -hmm. so it was with every medical device on our KIAs uh, as they process those bodies, they those remains. Uh, it is the most dignified thing. If anybody has never heard of that, it is the most dignified, solemn, loving thing that I have ever seen. I frankly never thought that the military uh, had that capability within them. Hmm. But those remains, however gruesome or partial or full, uh, are treated with the utmost dignity and respect. They are saluted. Uh, they are gently washed and, you know, everything. They, it is just the most amazing thing. They have a uniform shop that dresses the remains. 
Uh, they put on, they look up on their DD-214 and they put all of their awards and decorate the medals on their chest. Um, they put black socks on their feet, uh, you know, the, and they don't put shoes on, I, which I think is, uh, it's a gentle kind of loving idea, right? It, there's no, there's no big hard shoe on them. It is, they mm -hmm. are dressed or the, you know, transition is the concept, I think. Uh, of course, we all know that that part of them is already long gone and these are remains, but that's how they treat it. There was a colonel there that this female colonel who started taking fentanyl lozenges, which were one of the things you do in the battlefield is when a soldier's wounded, uh, instead of injecting IV, you know, fentanyl or something else, you give them a fentanyl lozenge. This thing is on a stick and it's got, they come in like, I think it's 800 microgram, 1200 microgram, um, 1600 microgram. Anyway, you give them that, you tape it to their thumb so they suck on it. And when it, they get enough fentanyl in them that they pass out, mm -hmm. they pass out and their hand drops and it pulls the lozenge out of their throat, out of their, out of their mouth. So when they wake back up again in pain after it wears off, because it's kind of short, short lived, they suck on it again. So it's a perfect way to let them self-administer pain meds, you know, and not overdose. Mm -hmm. uh, but she was removing those fentanyl lozenges off the dead and then uh, going into the female latrine and eating them. I mean, like eating them and crunching them up. And then she would pass out and uh, or go out into the van that we all came in. She'd pass out into the van. Now, that, that was found out now my expectation of something like that was that person would be sent to get help but they certainly would not go on to the next level or that kind of thing but that's what happened so they those kinds of things got forgiven but uh, what I did perhaps rightly so rightly so I got what I deserved. I just didn't expect it uh, they really came after me they charged me with some of the most salacious horrible just lies but they just their strategy is if they're going to take you down uh, they they just throw everything at you I mean I did not know I was actually at the time I had been legally separated from my wife for four years <laughs> four years uh, we were legally separated and in that separation agreement, it actually said there was a there was a non-molestation paragraph in there that said, if she is dating somebody, I she's dating somebody. Mm -hmm. I have no cause and nor legal justification to molest her for that or to complain about it. And the same goes for me. But I found out there then that if you're dating somebody in the military, under the Uniform Code of Military Justice, that is considered adultery. You can go to dinner, you can go to a movie, but you can't kiss, you can't hold hands, you cannot have any sexual relations. You do, that's adultery. And then if they can get somebody to describe things that went on behind closed doors, then they start adding more charges onto it. And pretty soon, you're really feel like a low life, right? <laughs> I mean, you're like, holy shit, you know? And and everybody seems to know. I mean, everybody seems to know because, you know, the charges are right there. 
and some captain comes and reads the charges to you. A captain, you know, you're I'm a lieutenant colonel. Captain reads charges to me. <laughs> the headquarters company commander does this. So uh, I lived with that for a number of years, and then uh, I just I I said to hell with this, and I you know hired a lawyer because my side of the story had never been told, and we came back in. Uh, to what was called the Army Discharge Review Board in uh, it's in Washington there. And there are six sitting full colonels from various branches uh, that are there. And they read your file. My file happened to be like, no shit. <laughs> so there's a reader. One guy gets designated to read it. And wouldn't you know it, he was a Mormon. <clears throat> he was a Mormon. Convenient. So, isn't that creepy? So he reads the file and he briefs everybody else. And so you're there and I had, you know, vice president of Sony Music. I had a retired Air Force colonel with me and I had my son in his dress uniform and I had my wife and I had uh, my lawyer and me. And uh, it, it all started when they asked Patty. Oh, and I had 187 letters of support telling the board to, to, to change this, the nature of this discharge, that it was wrong. And that was everything from four-star general down to all these command sergeants major who were guys that were E3s and E4s in, in my ranger company who are now sergeant majors or retired, you know, out there. And they're all writing letters and lieutenant colonel, et cetera. So the board was inundated with positive messages uh, from people I had served with who thought I was worth saving. And uh, it was interesting because when Patty started say, saying what she wanted to say, she started crying. And I, I shit you not, two members of the board started crying. And then it was like, my the lawyer goes, this is getting really weird. And, and he meant it <laughs> because he'd never seen these colonels cry. So two colonels are crying. By the time it gets around, because the, the Air Force colonel stands up and he talks, he cries. My, bro, my son stands up and to talk and he starts crying. By now, we have three members of the board who are outright all crying, you know, like snotty noses uh, <laughs> and wet cheeks. And the others are really fighting back, you know, emotion. Uh, and the reader, the Mormon guy, is like stoic. He was not buying it, I think. Uh, so I cried, everybody cried, and by the time it was all over, uh, three days later, I was notified by my lawyer. He said, okay, because here it is. And I was like, oh, shit, that's not a good way to start this. He said, uh, you have an honorable discharge. He said it was a unanimous vote. And he said, not only that, but read this paragraph here in the announcement letter the charges against this service member were baseless without merit and no credible evidence he is thereby granted an honorable discharge and you know blah 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 then the rest of it's the admin crap that goes with it and I went wow wow you know uh, I got what I deserve I broke a secrecy oath but I mm -hmm. broke it for a specific reason. I believe that it was the right thing to do with the information at hand.
not you know necessarily a Snowden episode kind of thing. Right. I did it because it was transformational, and I wanted people to be transformed. I had gone through the you know the, the theological perspective of of it and found it not true. This was true, and you just articulated that uh, when you spoke uh, when we first started this. And it was powerful for you, and I just, I really appreciate you and your honesty in sharing it with people. Because it was the same for me, and it has been the same for tens of thousands of others that, you know, that have crossed my path to hear the lesson or be in the class or something else. And as you've also heard me say, uh, you know, this transformation of this global society, you know, moving us squarely out of this damn destructive phase that we're in into a rebuilding phase and then a sustaining phase before it begins to unravel again because it will if we live mm. that long i mean if, if if our society exists that long yeah humanity exists that long but if if we continue we have now been over 20 years in a destructive phase typically they're like 15 years like the longer ones so now we're in 20 plus years with no end in sight New Cold War has started, uh, right? I mean, it's the Taliban are back in power. <laughs> Al Qaeda is there. <laughs> you know, it, it just it's it's just it's bad. So it's not going to be you and me. Uh, probably you more than me because you have a voice and a message to a lot of people who listen to your show. Uh, my calling is to teach. You know, to be an educator, a trainer, a researcher, a scientist, that uh, you have a really powerful platform and message and a lot of people looking at it and listening. And that helps people uh, understand the significance of this and the power of this transformation because it's in your eyes and it's in your voice. Uh, it's in the emotion that you bring forward when you're telling people that. Uh, and I really, again, not to be repetitive, want to thank you for your honesty. Ah, thank you. And, uh, you know, your transparency in, in sharing it. That, that was the reason, you know, that we that I did that. Mm. Hopefully that, you know, we need generations of children who are empowered and nurtured and encouraged to build this capability. How significant would that be? To have lived 67 years knowing that this was an ability inherent to you. Spending 67 years, in my case, of uh, practicing, honing, fine-tuning the ability. How different would my perspective, my message perhaps be, my, my methods, right? Uh, my message. All these things could be so much more powerful than I 67 years ago. And it had been nurtured in me as opposed to me derailing and spending a great deal of energy in something that just quite simply was not true. Mm -hmm. So it's a, it's an amazing thing that we're here now talking about this kind of stuff. And it is amazing. Don't realize that if Psychic Warrior had not come out, you wouldn't even be using that term remote healing. You wouldn't. It would have <laughs> never been in the, in the lexicon of humanity. It would have still been sequestered away as an intel collection tool, as a weapon of war. Wow. And I hate that title. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> I'm usually somebody in the publishing company like this. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's a hor- it's a long title, Psychic Warrior, the inside story of the Stargate. The CIA Stargate program. True story of a soldier's espionage and awakening. It's like, holy crap, you know? Could it have been any longer? <laughs> First, you butcher my book down to, you know, left all the good stuff out. Yeah. But uh, I, the, the, the classes, you know, I, I know you stopped teaching them for a while. Um, do you plan on doing, going back to doing more, especially like the Zoom style classes? Cause you, you then, you know, you don't have to have a, a place to do it. I, I really loved the, the, the format. It totally worked. It did, didn't it? Um, <clears throat> yeah, I, I mean, I want to do that. I mean, I would never go back on the road again. That was just a horrible, that was, that was a nightmare because you, we had all kinds of production equipment because we had sound systems and speakers and all the gear and, oh, my God, the cabling and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we had a whole, like, big trailer just packed to the roof with that kind of stuff that got hauled everywhere we went and then had to be set up and then had to be torn back down again, and including tables and tablecloths and chairs and all that stuff because a lot of the venues didn't have it. I'll, I never want to do that again. Uh, but allowing people to just in the comfort of their own home, you know, sign in for a, a class like that. And I, yeah, I agree with you. It was, it was a perfect, perfect venue. It's a great format to do it. And we can do that for extended remote viewing as well, because I've done that. We did a class uh, probably uh, a year and a half ago. We did a zoom, zoom extender remote. Viewing class. Mm-hmm. Now I don't think you've ever met him. I would love to have him uh, have you get him on your show. <clears throat> there is a there is a, a, a coordinate and extender remote viewing student of mine who is a really really smart guy. He and his wife, but he is he works in uh, altered reality or virtual reality stuff. He and his partner, and they are they just created a wingsuit. Uh, virtual reality experience. That's so awesome. I'm gonna, yeah, I'm going to fly out and see it and then see if there's anything I think they could add to it or something. But yeah, you you see, when you look at your arms, because you're wearing the mm-hmm. helmet, at your arms, you've got a wingsuit on. You know, your shoes, everything. And you can see the guy next to you and, you know, they're the different color wingsuits and stuff. And you step up to the precipice and you can look down and see your toes. If your feet are over that line, your toes will go over the line and you'll see rocks falling off up underneath your feet. And then you have to leap. And when you leap, uh, there's a harness system that picks you up. Mm-hmm. So now you're hanging horizontally and you're flying down a mountain. Oh, wow. You know, between the trees and all that kind of stuff, flying in a wingsuit. Uh, can you crash? Yeah, you could steer yourself in the mountain and it just turns everything red and they start you over again. But <laughs> <laughs> you have to pay money to do this, right? So I would like to have him on the show because he he wants to do for the master class. 
in the master class, which is after extended remote viewing, we do a whole bunch of different things that are just designed to expand your experience Rolodex with working beyond the physical. And so one of the things that you do there is you get into an, a beginning session day one in the morning. <clears throat> it has a tendency to be a little tense at times. I don't moderate it, but my wife does or somebody else. And what happens there is we go through uh, imperatives. And you're, you're, you're isolating imperatives. <coughs> I think I'm going to have to cough. Hold on a second. That's what happens if I keep talking. <laughs> so you isolate two negative imperatives driving the human condition in that moment and two positive imperatives driving the human condition in that moment. <clears throat> <clears throat> that is usually attained by consensus. There are some outliers. doesn't matter. That's what the class is going to work around. Those imperatives in much of my lecture and much of the work that will be done are all centered around those two those four imperatives. <clears throat> so the first thing that happens is we ask, we ask you to use the materials provided. So you have five by seven cards. Have I told you this? Wait, no. Have I, mm. have I <clears throat> and so on those five by seven cards, you must imprint in a meaningful way using colored markers glitter that you wouldn't believe the crap i mean we give them everything and people use it <laughs> you know like uh, epoxy stuff mm -hmm. and all over it build little things on it <laughs> um you have to imprint your waveform expression your understanding of each of those imperatives the two negatives and the two positives. So just for explanation purposes, let's say it's uh, one is hatred and, and the other is greed. So you have to imprint that on this card, on one side of the card, and your name just goes up in the top right-hand corner. And you have to do the same thing for love and compassion, let's say. Compassion would be a difficult uh, one for a lot of people. But anyway, that's just just for explanation purposes. <clears throat> and these four cards are created. You just turn them into your group leader. Your group leader takes them, shuffles them up along with everybody else's cards. And eventually they get shuffled with all of the cards. Mm -hmm. So last master class we did had like 103 people in it. So it's 103 people, four cards. <laughs> That's a lot. <laughs> and it all gets shuffled up. And then uh, we rent a venue that's like uh i don't know it's like a it's like a basketball court inside right and it doesn't have bleachers in it uh we it's a specific kind of room and we sometimes it's carpeted sometimes it's wood sometimes it's been concrete <laughs> uh, and what happens is the group leaders just have shuffled cards so they have no order to them and they don't know whose they have they tape them on the wall at exactly four feet up from the bottom. They tape them face down mm -hmm. on the wall, all the way around this room, all the way around it. 
<laughs> and I have a, a, a mathematician guy that's that was with me, that works with me when we do that because I want to know what the probabilities of finding the cards are. So he does all the measurements and you know and the, the spacing and calculates the probability of finding a card. So because here's how they have to do it: they all sit in the middle of the room and they have those mindfold blindfolds on. Mm -hmm. right? <clears throat> and we do a cool down CD to get them into an altered state, an alpha brainwave state. And then they're shown how to move in the room and they're blindfolded. So they all get up, they're all facing different directions. And what we will do is we will have them, you walk with your hands like this, right? out in front of you, your hands like this. Mm -hmm. If you come to a pole, you'll feel the pole. If there was a pole in the room, sometimes there is. Uh, if not, when you come to the wall, your hands will touch the wall. When your hand touches the wall, and what you have to, are supposed to be doing when you're moving through the room is you're trying to find your cards on the wall. Okay? You're following the signal line to those imperatives that you imprinted and it's now somewhere on the wall in this massive room, size of an indoor, like a gymnasium at a high school or something. And when you touch the wall, you'll feel a card. And the first card that you find, you lift it up and you can lift up your blindfold and look at the card. If it's not your card, put it back down again, put your blindfold on, turn around, put your back to the wall and go. And while you're moving, what you're trying to do is, is find, detect, and decode that signal line to get to your cards. Mm -hmm. Now, seems impossible. It's usually about 65, 70% of the entire room will find all four cards within two hours. Hmm. All four. The others, uh, there will be another 20%. Uh, or 15% uh, that will get three cards. Uh, there will be a very small percentage that will get two cards. And an even smaller percentage that will get one card. And in the 20 some years of doing that, I can tell you there's probably only five people who got no cards. That was a very rare thing to have that happen. Thousands of people that did this. Well, the reason I'm telling you this story is because this this young man that works in virtual reality, when I explained this in uh, extended remote viewing class, he said, we can do this. We can do it with virtual reality. You go, you can do it with virtual reality? You mean like we can, you can create a room that we can see on the computer screen and you can uh, you know, you do the whole thing? He goes, yeah, they can, they can pull a, a, a five by seven card out they can, you know, click on a pen or a pencil or a spray can icon and mm -hmm. select the color and the width of the and, and start, you know, and start creating their card electronically, imprint it and save it, and then virtual reality-wise, they will put it all the way around the room in exactly the same manner. And how they will move is uh, that part we didn't get to, but we would have to black them out in some way. Uh, until they got to a room. But Gary, it's the most amazing thing to see what happens to people in that quest, 
that vulnerable quest of trying to find those cards, what do you think they typically find first? Positives or negatives? Mm, positives. Yeah, find negatives, negatives first. Highest percentage found negatives first. Why? Because the negative waveforms of what's going on in the global society impact us daily. They are huge. And they are destructive and damaging. And they are out there, which is why our council needs to be to people to do what you can to remove that shit from your life. I mean, you have a choice. You don't have to watch it. You don't have to listen to it. You don't have to get pissed off and talk to the television. No. <laughs> you don't have to sit and listen to pizza commercials and other stupid ass stuff that's, you know, that flies across the airwaves. Like mm -hmm. that. You don't have to. You do not have to do that. And you have to sit down and say to yourself, what's it? What am I getting out of this? Do I feel like I'm, you know, enlightened and informed or what? Or do I just feel agitated, pissed off? There's all sorts of studies, peer-reviewed studies out now about, you know, uh, these uh, cortical steroid rates in, in people, these, uh, uh, you know, the uh, heightened blood pressure, hypertension, you know, uh, that, that's going on with people because they're constantly in this drip feed of, you know, negative stuff, visually, audi audi audibly. Um, and it's taking a huge toll on everything i mean from children on up mm -hmm. because as the parents react to it the children begin to react to the waveform uh the expression the resonance that the that the parents are bringing into the home right uh if a wife is one that doesn't want to watch that I, I don't want that and the husband does mm -hmm. there's friction now right there is there is visible friction because why don't you want to look at this this is important Damn it. You know, <laughs> so it goes. And it, it is, you know, it's just, I want to see us do another master class and I would love to see us do another explorer class. And the, the idea that we could do it virtually, I mean, in virtual reality, is just tantalizing. That is think? cool. It's awesome. That'd be just like the most amazing thing in the world to be able to just sit at home on Zoom and what you know create your cards and throw them in and yeah you'll find them in a blacked out manner right mm -hmm. so anyway that's where we're going with that i think uh that that's probably a while down the road but i think we'll probably do the next crv class in january mm -hmm. do an erv class um in february that's what i think wow yeah definitely want to check out the erv class oh yeah and you you just come the same way you did last time. Awesome. Have you there, right? Just don't tell anybody. Don't know anything. Wow. <laughs> 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 uh, um, you know, yeah, it's, it's definitely a transformative experience. The other thing that, that uh, before we wrap up, I still want one more thing, is one of the targets that you gave me or gave everybody was themselves open search inward and uh and, and as you know like i was going through a bad time you know i was get, going through my divorce my, i was living in basically an empty house with no furniture and, and a dog and, and you know it, it was just that situation 
And when I was doing that session, it was bizarre because all the only thing I was getting was sadness, like heavy sadness, like like it was start making me kind of like want to cry and and just you know, and and I was like, man, like I'm I'm not getting anything but sadness off of this target. And then when the target was revealed, I was like, man, shocking, right? Yeah. <laughs> It's uh, that's there's a reason why we never do a small group around that because uh, I don't want people revealing things that they have no idea what they're revealing and mm-hmm. all of a sudden you know we throw up the cute little cartoon thing you know the the target is you the open search n word and uh, it's just reminded me since you brought that up I actually have the I actually have the feedback <laughs> sitting on my desk on my screen right here. I still have not had a chance to finish that to give it back to you guys, and I but I will. Uh, <clears throat> that is a really powerful, uh, f- you know, finishing point, uh, and supposed to be an eye opener for people, and it's supposed to be an intriguing thing for people. Uh, when that happens, and when you saw that. That could have been something that you then began the process of thought incubating on. Yeah. Like, how do I resolve this sadness in my life? You know, how do I need to live? What do I need to be? What do I, you know, meaning what do I need to become? Uh, You know, what tools can I collect for this? Uh, How should I approach this and, uh, you know, and live fruitfully and, lovingly and compassionately you know, all of those things become questions that you know that just off the top of my head i think you know i are those are the kinds of things that you can explore in thought incubation not you know the remote viewing of it is just the start point mm-hmm. it's really supposed to just be the <clears throat> us me picking up a giant rock and throwing it into your rucksack and going <laughs> there see you can feel that, right? Yeah. Because that's all I want you to do is I want you to feel that. And then when you know that that's there, now you get shown in this, <clears throat> in kind of this intimate simplicity in this open search inward, where you come in, you know, devoid of judgment and you come in because you're unaware. And all you're doing is remote viewing, sensitive perceiving, detecting, decoding, and objectifying what you're feeling. And, and you're shown and given the thing that is most impactful for you right then and there that you need to work on in some fashion. Because if you just let that sadness go, <clears throat> what happens is it just compounds at the speed of thought. Mm-hmm. That's called conceptual illusion, right? And so you, it just gets, it winds larger and larger and larger. And it just becomes this complex, multicolored, you know, ball of, of pain and memories and sadness and all this other stuff that just becomes a gargantuan, you know, weight on you. And it, there are things you can do to unravel it. There are things you can do to heal yourself from it. But the place to start is thought incubation. Mm-hmm. Powerful. Thought incubation is a powerful tool. Yeah, and, right? I, and I've been doing that with the sadness, actually, because I've been just trying to 
use gratitude, you know? It's like, okay, I have this sadness, but man, yeah, yeah. I have a whole lot to be grateful for, too, you know? Sure. I mean, I lost a family because of, you know, what I did, uh, but but it wasn't just the remote viewing thing. I, I really lost the family because I did all the kinds of jobs that kept me deployed, you know, 10 and a half, 11 months out of the year. Yeah. And a woman can only take so much. She was a, you know, Debbie was a really perfect wife. She was a perfect army wife. You know, she was attractive. She was intelligent. She's far smarter than me. <laughs> and, uh, <clears throat> and she just bent over backwards to make, you know, to support me in every way that she could. But I was a shitty husband. You know, I, I, I put the army first. I put the next hard assignment first. Uh, and I was that made being a shitty husband made me a shitty father, and I was I was a terrible father to my kids. I didn't even know them. Hence, that's why you know, two of them don't speak to me now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> my son does, but I think that's because he's a command sergeant major. <laughs> <laughs> so we we talk you know weekly, <clears throat> but my daughters don't. You know, I get it. You know, I'm not I'm not bitter about it. I got what I deserve. You're yeah. A, Shitty father, don't expect you know rainbows and you know and and kisses because yeah you're gonna get what you you're gonna reap what you sow and I did so I put them first and ultimately that was a great big lesson for me right mm -hmm. because they were standing by my side as the army was butchering me and you know calling me names and lying and doing all that stuff and I had always put the army first over them they were second to me. I mean, they were second to me, my career, you know, my men and, and the mission that they were second to all of those things. And I would be quite vocal about it to my, my wife that, you know, what you're married and you know that this is my life and you're here supporting it. If you don't want to be here, don't be here. Well, that's a stupid thing to say. Uh, so yeah, that all an unraveled, but I live, you were saying you live by yourself. So did I. I lived by myself in a rented room. When I went to Commander General Staff College, I rented a room from a, a woman, an older woman, whose husband died of cancer in the very bed I was sleeping in. Mm. It was creepy. <laughs> it was pretty creepy. But the price was right. And man, I was a starving guy. I mean, I, I sent all the money home and I paid for the rent there. I paid for gas to get back and forth to the campus. <clears throat> And I didn't even have money for lunch. I mean, I would go into the cafeteria and I would go over to the hamburger fixings place, right? Where I had lettuce, tomatoes, peppers, mm -hmm. and stuff. I'd build a salad. <laughs> <laughs> I'd build a salad out of that stuff. And then they had a cup of coffee at Command Drill Staff College. I swear to God, it had to be 1.5 gallons. In a cup of coffee and it was like you bought it for a buck and a half and then every refill you needed through the day was 25 cents hmm. that's a coffee deal that is good <laughs> i lived on coffee and uh you know and desire to do well academically there and uh yeah and, and stolen salads <laughs> well, I'm definitely not in that bad shape now. <laughs> I'm actually 
you know, I, I mean, I went through my little, my, my hurdle and everything's good now. So. Did you have children? I did not have children. I've always been afraid to have children. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> get it. Get it. It's a scary place, this world right now. Yep. Awesome. It's a tough thing to be, take that responsibility. Right. So thank you for taking the time to do this interview on Thanksgiving. Thank you for having me. And you're such a great interviewer because you just let me pull the string in the back of my neck and go. <laughs> I really love you for that. It's <laughs> <laughs> the best just, way to do it, I think. I'm a chatty dude. So. <laughs> and uh, before we wrap it up, where's the best place for my listeners to find you? <clears throat> uh, well, jeez, uh, that's a good question. I, I think probably the most update up to date website would be triple uh, w dot rv for remote viewing but rv hyphen not underscore rv hyphen forum f o r u m dot club. So that takes you to the remote viewing forum website. You can see about what I'm doing and crap like that. And then uh, I'm on Clubhouse every Friday night for 13 hours. All night long. I talk, yeah, from, I talk from seven to eight. <laughs> seven, you know, in, at night, Eastern Standard Time till 8 a.m. the next day. Most of the time. If my voice starts, you know, cracking or something because it's in bad shape, then <clears throat> like it was, you know, a, a month ago, I, I cut it short. Actually, the moderators will force me to cut it short. I feel like George Bush. <laughs> It's not my decision. <laughs> to give you the boot. <laughs> no, but the moderators are just awesome people. You know, Ted. And yeah. Linda, Amy, uh, Mari. Mari's awesome, too. I mean, she's, she's the one that's doing all this stuff with her children. Doing all this, you know, this training, like card work that I just told you. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, she's very serious about, about raising her children. And this inspired and awakened manner. Uh, and she has a son, Ignacio, and he's already said, I'm going to be a physicist because I, I love what, what, what Dave Morehouse says. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? He may grow up to be a motorcycle racer, but I hope not. I hope <laughs> that sounds like fun too. <laughs> But Gary, thank you, man. You're awesome. And thank you to your audience and for their patience. And um, yeah, that I'm on Clubhouse. It used to be by invitation, but I think on, to get on Clubhouse, but I think anybody can get on there now. I, I think, think so, yeah. Yeah. If not, uh, just send me an email at, at that rv-forum.club. There's, there's a contact button there. Just push the contact button. <clears throat> no, it's not collecting your information. You just need a valid, you know, email address because if you want me to respond to something, I'll respond to it there. You can find me on Twitter as well. I don't even know what I'm, what it, what I am on Twitter. I have no idea. I don't know. Why I, use Twitter, <laughs> I don't either. It, yeah. <laughs> I mean, people try to communicate with me and they get really frustrated, which my my count goes like up twenty and then down 30 
<laughs> 22 down 40 so, because i think people are trying to get me to talk to them and i'm like I, I don't know how to do this thing i mean come on plus i'm long-winded can't you tell what do you think? <laughs> you know, i'd be like type 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 there'd be red screen red screen red screen so no i'm not on yeah twitter is a pain oh god yeah <laughs> well i'll put a link to to your website in the notes of this episode and also put um, a mention in there for the clubhouse group also. Yeah. It's a great group. It's yeah. always got a lot of people in it. Good questions. We do. <clears throat> we talk about really amazing stuff and it's a lot of fun. We laugh and carry on, tell crazy stories. You can also go to davidmorehouse.com. Just all one word, davidmorehouse.com. Uh, my son, my stepson, my son, uh, Jay runs that, and uh, it, you know, it's got a lot of information on it, and, uh, stuff like that. So those two web pages are probably probably the best place to start. Yeah, yeah, and I think also on a davidmorehouse.com, there's also a link to the other one too. Uh, Is there? I think so. Yeah. Good. I didn't know that. I never go on either one of them really. <laughs> <laughs> I never go onto my own website either. Yeah, I, mean, you know. I know it's there. Yeah. I hope it's there. <laughs> I mean, I'm not a technophobe, but I'm definitely not a you know when it comes to stuff like that. Yeah, um, I will quibble on my, with myself. I will spend an inordinate amount of my day trying to sort that out. If I thought I could edit, you know, like a web page, mm-hmm. like the modify mode or whatever it is that you go into oh that would be disaster mm. yeah unfortunately i gotta do all mine myself <laughs> once it's up i just leave it alone once i see something that's working then i just stop there are you using wix no i used uh wordpress i wix is far easier far more flexible wordpress is a more complex system uh, and I did a bunch of reading on it that said, unless you're really going to try to use all of the capabilities that WordPress has, mm-hmm. I'm not talking about what shows up. I'm talking about all the behind the scenes stuff that goes on with WordPress. It has all kinds of compatibility problems, <clears throat> meaning all these different plugins that you put into it to do different things. Yeah. So uh, Wix is seems to be like this real big streamlined simple to use mm-hmm. kind of intuitive process now, great helpline awesome videos uh very affordable and uh it, it you know it has everything it's just like icon driven basically yeah. so i mean i watched them do it and uh it was like wow that looks like fun actually and it took me about three weeks on wordpress to get it the way i wanted it but now that it's working, I don't care. I don't even know if people go to it. <laughs> I did. Oh, I yeah, you it. did. Yeah, I went there. Cool. Notice I have my Ranger uh, paraphernalia. Yep. And, uh, <laughs> I got Buddha and guitars. <laughs> I, I used to have room in my other office in Vegas. I don't think I have room here. Kind of standing on top of myself here. Hmm. Much smaller house. <clears throat> yeah. Smaller house is better. Well, now when you have a whole lot of shit, it isn't. I have 20, you know, I told you this, I have 25,000 books. Wow. So 
That's that's more than what some small municipal libraries have. Yeah, yeah. And I've been hauling around for like thirty-five, well, close to forty years. I gave all mine away. <clears throat> I I just I would, but I can't I can't stand the idea of it. I I think that when it comes to the printed word, I think I might be have some obsessive compulsive, uh, you know, compulsive issue going on there because. <laughs> In all honesty, <laughs> or maybe I'm a hoarder, <laughs> literary hoarder, uh, if there is such a thing. But yeah, I collect them because I know where they all are on the shelves. And it pisses me off that a whole bunch of them are not on shelves. Hmm. And bookcased almost all, if I could turn that camera around, you would see what I'm talking about. <clears throat> it's half the size of my old office. Wow. My old office was 18 by 24. With a walk-in closet in a bathroom. That was my old office. Now, yeah, no. <laughs> yeah, I gave all my stuff away. When I, after removing my books like twice, I said, I'm done with this. I'll just give them away. And I'll believe that they're going to go to people that actually will be able to need them more and read them. Because it's rare that I even have a book and reread it. I well, I do. I mean, I, I'm just notorious for it, and I, you know, as I said, because I was grossly dyslexic and you know, in the second grade, I actually learned to imprint, you know, the memory of things. I mean, I, I could, I developed this kind of a strange photographic memory. I, I can't, you know, I never got measured, so I'm not going to be like Truman Capote and going, I have a 93 percent recall. I have absolutely no idea what my recall was, but uh, I could I could roll it through my head, you know, to go back to a paragraph or a page in a particular book and remember what was significant in that book that I had read. And I, you know, as I get older, that of course is diminishing. But God, when I was in my thirties and my forties, mm -hmm. I was I was a snap trap getting stuff like that. I could remember things like that. Hmm. Just never saw that regulation in the Red Book, the UCMG Red Book about adultery. <laughs> You're separated. <laughs> I got through Commander on Staff College, you know, uh, Cass Cubed and the, the career course, the basic course. Nobody ever said that. I couldn't You'd think do that it. would be something they'd say, right? Mm -hmm. every, every, you know, career course like that, officer basic course, officer advanced. You know, combined arms and services staff school, command drill staff college, you know, war college. You'd think that that would be something they would pull up. There'd be like a slide, right? Hey, as long as you're a member of the armed services, here's the rules. You get separated, you can't do these things. That would be good information to have. I could, I could never live by those type of guidelines. You know, I, a couple couple years ago, I applied for a police dispatcher job, and part of the thing for that job though is I had to take a um, a lie detector test, and he sent me the questions in advance. And I'm looking at the questions, especially like the ones about sex, and I'm like, "Oh, that's a lifestyle, Polly. That's very rare." Uh, and I'm like, "I can't, I can't do this. I can't pass this. I'm guilty of everything on here." <laughs> <laughs> I, it probably wouldn't matter what they're probably if you just said yes. I'm not there. 
I don't think they're judging you. They're trying to determine if you're going to lie about things. Mm -hmm. Truthful about it and go, hell yeah. You know, I did this, I did that, I did that one three times. You know, stuff like that. <laughs> they're probably, because they're not against the law, so, I, you know, I doubt it. Unless it's something like, have you robbed a bank or did you ever beat somebody and take their wallet? You know, well, yes. Yeah, you're probably not going to you know, kind of thing. <laughs> you're just answering, you know, to in the affirmative or telling the truth on a lifestyle poly. That's really what they're after. Hmm. Not in the agency. Whenever we got a lifestyle poly, they're looking for weaknesses where you could be you could be manipulated. Yeah. You know, they want to know if you if you if they can use the Soviets actually called it a honey trap. That's what they called it, a honey trap. Which means they'd send in some sexified thing mm -hmm. to uh, compromise you and and then threaten you if they, you didn't turn over classified information. Apparently, it worked, but they I doubt seriously a police department's doing that. I, I bet know. you. I know if they sent me that that questionnaire and I said, "Okay, I'm not doing this." <laughs> How many questions was it? Oh God, it was a lot. This. Thing was like ten pages long. That's just showing you then the, all the potential questions that the examiner can ask you. They're not going to ask you all of those. They just they won't. They don't have the time. And um, you have to remember that polygraphs are not admissible. Uh, they they are not considered uh, accurate uh, evidence of anything. They are always used. If you've ever seen uh, uh, someone like in a documentary where somebody gets polygraphed and then the police officers come in and go, you really did miserable on that polygraph. I mean, come on now. You know, you knew the truth that you murdered such and such before you even came in here. I told you that after this session, we were going to know whether you did or you didn't and you failed. There are a lot of people who just go, okay, I did it. I killed it. You know, I, uh, you know, I killed whatever. <laughs> I did it. You're right. You know, you got me. Right. But it's not admissible in, in a court of law. Hmm. Yeah, I wasn't worried about that. You know, I was thinking, like, if I did take it, like, I had read somewhere, like, if you put a tack in your shoe and, and press down on it, it'll create pain. And, and through the whole thing, it'll just register pain. <laughs> They know all the tricks. <laughs> I, I, on one of my polygraphs, in, in, when I was in the activity, I had, had was studying like some stupid reason, hypnosis and other stuff. So I was like, I was uh, d doing like a self hypnosis thing to try to just become a, like a vegetable on the thing because mm -hmm. ours were just uh, CI polys, which is counterintelligence. They want to know if you ever. You know, met with an agent. Have you ever interfaced with an agent? Have you ever divulged classified information? Blah blah blah. Of course, I could never not. I could never pass it now. But I, <laughs> I was there. I was playing this kind of game, like seeing if I could beat it, because I just thought it was a pain in the ass to have to do this every quarter. Bottom line is, they were like, "You're, you're doing something." I'm like, "What do you think I'm doing?" You know, like. I'm, trying to be Mr. You know, sneaky, sneaky. And they're like, you're doing something and it's deception indicated. Is that how you want us to report this? 
So <laughs> that's what they did. They went to Colonel, you know, Colonel Lackey, who was my boss, and said, you know, Morehouse is poly. He failed it. It's deception indicated. So that was just me trying to self-hypnosis, mm-hmm. you know, self-hypnotize and just like chill, like to come down and the thing. But they were like, it's an irregular pattern. So they, if it's an irregular pattern, um, you know, it doesn't hit the norms with all these uh, calibration, I think they call them, maybe qualifying questions mm-hmm. where they establish a baseline. And so from that baseline with questions like, what's your name? Uh, where do you live? They get a baseline registration. So if you drop way below or go way up on that, that's when they just circle it and go deception indicated, typically. <laughs> and then questions are, are, will be the same questions and they'll do them more than three times. And the reason they do them more than three times, but worded slightly differently, uh, is so that they can get a statistical relevance hmm. for deception or truth right so i think if you had just said yes i did that or this or blah 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 because you i have a one of the physicians that works for me uh one of the emergency physicians that works for me and i have a number of them in, in our company and uh he was arrested for assault and for um and for marijuana use, for weed use, like like multiple times when he was a kid and in college. But then he went to med school, and now he's a police physician. So they just, you know, if you fess up, they're not going to hold you accountable for it. I mean, unless it's a felony or something like that, you know, that you did. But if it was adultery or, you know, some other stupid thing, like they'll ask dumbass things like, have you ever stolen anything? And then you're thinking like, okay, pack of baseball cards when I was a kid. I mean, you know, this and that. It's kind of, it, it, they don't, don't let it rattle you. If you, I mean, if you really want it, that'd probably be a really cool job. Uh, I think I'll stick with podcasting. <laughs> <laughs> Rather than having to tell the truth, I'm trying to find the truth. <laughs> there you <laughs> Awesome. Well, hang on for one second, and I'm going to play the outro, and then I'm going to go eat some turkey.
share. Again, thank you for listening to Everything Imagined.